Welcome to the Mostly Pot Out at Night. Mostly. I am your host, Salem, joined by my co-host, Graveyard. This is our episode <laughs> This is episode two of our new weekly All Things Horror Podcast. Our our topic for this week is the before times, also known as in the beginning. Um, we're going to start off with um, a small section of uh, horror writers. Uh, we know there's a lot more, and there'll probably be more episodes later on expanding more of them. But today we're going to focus on Poe and H.B. Lovecraft. So they have a, a large um, influence on the horror world. They continue to keep making adaptations of their works um, over 100 years later, and in just about both cases now. <clears throat> um, and so they're they're still around. Their influence is huge. Um, so we're just going to talk a little bit about them and some of the adaptations and things that uh, have been happening with their stories, both in the past and in the future. Um, so we're going to start um, just a, a little intro here is our uh, favorite stories from from both uh, authors. Uh, I'll, I will start with my favorite Poe story would be uh, The Cask of Amontillado or Amontillado, depending on. Uh, where you are, I looked up the pronunciation <laughs> online and looking for pronunciations, and it's, and it's both. It's either one, so it's either or. So uh, I guess either one is correct. But that would be my favorite one. And I remember um, we had to read it for I think it was middle school, um, and it was at the time where I was obsessed with Latin and Latin phrases and trying to learn as much Latin as I could. And there's a, a cool um, saying in that story, and it's. Uh, I think I believe it was the the crest of of the of his family, and it was "Nemo me in pun lassacit," which means "No one provokes me without punishment," which is essentially the whole story of him getting revenge. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I I never had the opportunity to read these in in middle school or, or high school for me. Um, but no, like I said, that's a that's a great story. It's it's a good one to you know as well. I, I think my favorite is uh, the case of Sir Vladimir or Vladimir, how do you say it? Valdemar. Uh, Valdemar, <laughs> yeah. Because you know, we're, it's uh, you know, it's on the cusp of death that he was trying to hypnotize someone to see kind of how much control he would have over him, and it was kind of in, you know a veering into mysticism or hypnosis. And the story that plays out for it for me is just kind of really interesting that you're taking a little bit of science or trying to figure out science with, you know, someone being on the verge of, of death. Right. And, you know, you know, how much control the mind has over the body and vice versa. Yeah, no, I mean, that's fascinating subject. Good choice. Um, Favorite Lovecraft story. Mine would be the shadow over Innsmouth just because I love the, uh, the, the creepiness of it. Um, I don't think they've had any really good adaptations of it yet. Um, hopefully there will be in the future. There's people that have taken bits and pieces of it, um, but I don't think there's been anything full on right. with that story yet. I hope to, I hope they will be in the future. But. Right. Cause I believe that's one of uh, the stories that Richard Stanley's trying to do, right? Uh, I believe so. The next one that he was going to do was going to be the Dunwich horror. Um, right. But from the last I heard is his funding got pulled. Really? Yes. That's a shame. Yeah. Yes. Because because with his movie, especially adaptation, you know, my favorite uh, Lovecraft story is the you know color out of space, right? I think that you know we have a couple adaptations, and it's just it's sci-fi, right? It, it's a it's a meteor that comes down, and you know, kind of exposes people to. 
however you want to call it, mutation, radiation, whatever you want to call it. Mutation, and, radiation, that's good. I like that. <laughs> and um, and looking, having rewatched some, some of these things, is I kind of view like the, was it the meteor episodes that was in Creep Show that starts Stephen King? I feel it's kind of reminiscent of that story in a way. Uh, yeah, it definitely is, yeah. You know, it's a meteor that comes down, so, you know, Stephen King played the big idiot, right? <laughs> meteor uh, shit. <laughs> meteor shit, right, <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, like I said, for me, I like it because it is otherworldly and kind of how people would react in a real environment to not, not anything that comes down out of space and trying to figure out what it is. And Rich Jenner, I think, nailed it with the body horror elements of the story, too. He did. And, uh, and don't forget, that was also Lovecraft's favorite story, too. So you have a good choice. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I haven't read in a long time a lot of, of Lovecraft. For this podcast, I pretty much picked up the top tales of, of Poe and kind of read them through just in prepping and watching his movies. Um, I got a nice... Uh, leather binder, like 800 page HP uh, Lovecraft that I want to dive back into. I had stories from Lovecraft in the past, but didn't really include everything I wanted to include for this podcast that I'm rewatching. So it, I think it was a good find. It's just something I want to pick up and read and read more horrors I got out of it a while ago. Right. Now, I had read um, uh, just about all the stories that had been adapted that we're going to talk about. Um, but I, there were there were a few years ago, back when I was a security guard and I had nothing to do but read. So I read just about every Poe story, every Lovecraft story during that time period. Um, so it's been a while, but I still um, remember it. I had to refresh myself with, with a few of the stories. Just as I was watching the movies, I just wanted, like, I don't think it went like that. I had to go back and, and just kind of, you know, review it and, and make sure I would know the changes. Right. Um, yeah, mostly what I was missing out on was most of these movies. The, the vast majority of these I had not watched before. So I, I, yeah, I spent a lot of time this week <laughs> watching old movies, um, just to, to kind of catch up and, uh, and make sure that I, I, you know, watch the ones that I know that we're going to be discussing at least the major points. Right. Yeah. Um, for, for me, I, I had a couple of DVDs. I don't know why I picked them. I think because they're part of like the midnight munchie double packs that exist on DVDs. Back in the day, I think it was uh, the Masquerade Death. I'm trying to remember what the other one was. Might have been the Pit and Pendulum on DVD set for me. Um, you know, but you know, you were introduced to this stuff in middle school. I don't think I was introduced to really Poe or you know Poe until the Treehouse of Terror episode where they essentially read the Raven as a, a fifteen-minute clip, right? Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is if you, like, look online, you know, they have, like, you know, the best Poe adaptations of all time. Almost every single one of those lists contains that Simpsons episode. <laughs> so it is one of the better Poe adaptations. You know, even though it is The Simpsons, it is still considered a very faithful adaptation. <laughs> right. And, I mean, so that's, that's Poe. But, I mean, when do you think you've heard of Lovecraft? Because I don't think I really got into it later on, which we'll discuss the movie little bit but I feel like it wasn't something I heard a name I heard growing up um yeah I'm not sure exactly when I heard it I'm pretty sure it had to do with with D&D because uh, okay. I was big in a D&D &D and a lot of those you know monsters and stuff ended up 
coming over to D and D. So I'm sure in my, you know, reading on the fringes of D and D stuff, I had heard about it. I know I had started reading Lovecraft in high school. But again, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how I got turned on to it, but I, I mean, I was, you know, playing D and D since like fifth grade. So at some point between fifth grade and high school is when I found out about it. Yeah. Cause yeah, I started D and D mid ish nineties. And I can see that because what a lot of Eldritch Terrors or the old ones or stuff like that is in D and D. They like mm-hmm. a lot of their creature descriptions. I would say come easily. I can definitely see that coming from Lovecraft. Yeah. No. Yeah. There's also um, Lovecraft has his own um, <laughs> tabletop RPG called Call of Cthulhu, which is I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I have the book if you want to if you ever yeah. want to take a look at it. But um, yeah, it, it basically revolves around sanity. <laughs> and maintaining yourself. Okay. Okay. So that's interesting. That might tie into kind of what we see with some of the uh portrayal of the house on the hill, right? That mm-hmm. there's a lot of now I think about it, yeah, there are some Lovecraftian elements in there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean like I said, it's it's there's definitely roots of both of them. They're definitely in just about everything. Which I find amazing that for not being a no well-known name that as far as I'm aware of that how much Lovecraft is now ingrained into uh, pop culture. Right? Mm-hmm. We have Cthulhu cats. We have Cthulhu card games and Munchkins has, you know, a Cthulhu set that you can play a card game. Um, yeah. I see like little cutie cartoons of little Cthulhu's all the time. So yeah, definitely, definitely in the mainstream these days. I just I don't I can't recall what brought that on. Uh, I don't know. That's interesting. Huh. Research, right? Like said, it's kind of everywhere, but <laughs> <laughs> and I think Poe is too, but not as much as Lovecraft right now. I'm just we'll discuss that in a, in a bit of right why why that is. But um, do you want to get into? Some of these movies that we, we sat through this week. Yes, yes. We will start with the movies based on Edgar Allan Poe works. Um, I guess the most famous of which would be the uh, and the the 60s. Um, it would be the Poe cycle done by Roger Corman. Um, almost all of them starring Vincent Price. Um, <laughs> they started in uh, 1960 and that was House of Usher. And that was one of the movies that I watched this week. Um, I thought it was, um, I thought it was great. I, it was, it was pretty faithful to the story. Um, I mean, the only real major change they made is that, um, you know, the guy was, you know, concerned for his fiance rather than just being the random friend of, of the guy coming over. Right. Yeah. Cause the original right. story, just some random dude comes over and witnesses this whole thing, but doesn't really have an attachment um, to the woman in the story and in the movie, they, you know, made him a fiance to have an emotional attachment to it. Um, but other than that, it was, it was a pretty faithful adaptation, but, um, it was pretty good. It was definitely, um, one of the high bars for it. It definitely started oh, out absolutely. on a high note. <laughs> absolutely. I, I mean, yeah, with, with, uh, you know, Mr. Usher, as he always called him, right. That I think a big thing is, you know, they, you know, they weren't childhood friends. He wasn't coming to see his childhood friend from, it was like, they said like 20 years later or something like that. Mm-hmm. He hadn't seen since then. And kind of watching him in the last state of the House of Usher, right? Um, and they kind of made Vincent Price's Mr. Usher kind of a villain, I feel. 
that really wasn't there. And I think that's a kind of a common thing we see in these Poe adaptations and the Poe stories is there's not necessarily like a protagonist and antagonist. It's kind of like all internal monologue and just like a narration. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, they also had to adapt it into um, the movies of the 60s and the movies of the 60s were very much, um, you know, the vast majority of them had a clear protagonist, a clear antagonist, you know. So they had to try to right. fit that that niche in there. I mean, obviously, they did take some chances at here and there. I'm not saying they totally followed the formula, but yeah, I think they had to kind of, you know, wiggle themselves into that that known realm. Right. And don't get me wrong, Vincent Price. I love Vincent Price. I, I think his work is is done. I've always loved. He's a good. He usually plays. I'd say a villain, almost right. Yeah, or or he plays a, a character that you would think is the villain. He's supposed to be. A creepy villain-esque character. Yeah, he always plays that kind of character. Right, and I think it really shines, especially in House of Usher. You know, yeah, yeah, um, he was good at it. He was great at it, and that's <laughs> why he kept doing it. That's why he kept getting work because he was awesome at it. Yeah, he, his voice was was very unique. His acting mannerisms, I'd say, is very play like stage like that. You know, I think in the '60s we were still in the atomic age of horror movies and really gearing more towards sci-fi and here's roger corman who did a lot of those b sci-fi movies as well but then bring it up you know I, I think very colorful sets very elaborate set pieces and i think that really shows in the 60s right it's almost like you're watching a play but in movie form i feel right no yeah it was it was definitely great i mean yeah he definitely has that that theatrical presence um but yeah like you like you said the movies of that time period were were still a lot of, in a lot of ways closer to theater than than you know present day anyway and i would argue that you could say that for a lot of horror is you know horror being like some of the first movies ever made that it was very we discussed this last time atmospheric very big stages if you will that you have to plan that it's just very elaborate in their set pieces. And I think the House of Usher really showcased that too. Right. And I, I think they used the same, um, you know, dead trees, the same castle front and the same door in almost every single one of these movies. <laughs> they just threw a coat of paint on the door and changed the knocker out. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure it was the exact same. Like, also, it had the, the the matte painting of the of the house on that yep. shore on the beach. That shore beach was the same in every movie. They just changed the painting of the house that was up on the hill. Right, and I think even talking about paintings, I think the paintings that Usher was doing in that movie, that style, we see through a good number of these movies that you know, going down the years. You, you recall him like his paintings that are very. Um, I'm not. I don't know art very well to describe it, but it was very like unique in their paintings. Like they have the portraits of their family that they had. I think you saw that kind of throughout these movies of the Corman era. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, a, I don't want to kind of label it as like evil psychedelic. <laughs> they were like very that, brightly yeah, yeah. weird colors, but also dark at the same time. Right. And I think that helped like illuminate and make it feel like the stage where things are brighter, more colorful than usually what we see in horror movies. Horror movies are usually dark and dim. And I like that fact, like in House of Usher, when he's lighting the 
you know, the two candles. Like, let me light these two candles also and get brighter in the room, even though it's, like, daylight. Right, like, I yeah. Can't close the curtains. I can't stand the light. And it's still the same lightness in, in the room. And it's very, it's a very like, spotlightish or very stage lighting. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Yeah, you could tell there was, like, a spotlight on the, where the, you know, exactly where the candle is. And when they put it out, they just turn that light off. Right. And yeah, yeah. And doing theater in, in high school and being a, a techie and doing sound and lighting and I didn't want spotlight and built set pieces. I very much see that. And I, I think that what makes it really, really work despite some Corbin not having some of the greatest films, but like the atmosphere the presentation was perfect. I think. Yeah, no, it was great. I thought I thought it was a, a great start. Yeah. Um, and the is there anything else you want to say about Usher? So I move on to the next one. No, I said I think I think even even though the you know elaborate because I was a like six page story. Yeah, if, very if short. That, that that I mean, it, yes, it took liberties to build a more uh, a story, right? Not just a narration, which is really hard to do. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, the next one we just you know talked saw was watched or chronologically was the pit and pendulum. The pit and the pendulum in 1961. Uh, But I, yeah, what are the? Yeah, go ahead. I'm saying what? What? How did you like that movie? Um, I thought it was pretty good. Um, I mean, it was one of the stories that I remember liking. Um, as as a kid, but I remember, uh, I guess the things that you focus on. (laughs) <laughs> when you're younger are a lot different as the things that you focus on when you're older. But um, I thought it was good. Um, I thought it was, it was a good adaptation of it. I mean, I loved the, the matte paintings at the end of the pit <laughs> was, was fantastic. I thought. Now, obviously I, I would have, like I said, crammed a lot in this week. And right. Angela was more of a pitch black environment that the, the narrator is in. That you know, a, I feel like a lot of the story that took place before we got to the actual pit, the actual pendulum, which was in like the last five minutes of the movie, right, like right, hour and twenty minute movie. Um, I feel like it could have been better because you know, uh, right, that the idea is in the story at least that he's assuming in prison that he's feeling around his what he considers his cell in the dark, right? And he realizes mm-hmm. that he's somewhere in there, there is a pit. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't recall is, you know, the reason why we got into the pit pendulum, was that really in the story versus the movie? Or was that all just lead up to the pit pendulum? You know, I'm, I, I think most of this stuff that happened before was just told through like him recalling things on how he got there. I mean, I mean, the story didn't focus on anything that happened before. And I think that the way that the story moved in the, and the movie moved is I think they were just trying to organically show you, you know, a way that this could happen, <laughs> that this, you know, that these people could end up in the pit and the pendulum in that day and age and, and, and focus on it. And this could happen is, you know, they had to go over the whole thing about his dad being an inquisition torturer 
And then they and then they had to separately go over the whole thing of like, oh, he witnessed his dad, you know, torture his mom and his uncle, you know, stuff like right. that. And then and then they had to push him too far so that he broke and then became that instead of just being that. You know, like the short. Right. I mean, they could have cut an hour out of that story by just saying <laughs> he is this instead of organically trying to introduce all that stuff in there. And I think all that, yeah, that first hour, I think that's all it was trying to do. Right. And would you say that? in the in the story do you think that was a jail cell or do you think that was a torture room because his essentially options were you know yeah he was getting food yeah mice were kind of going over his body he was afraid to move because of the the pendulum that there was there with the clock above him Mm -hmm. to me it seemed like his two options were fall into this unknown pit or gets cut in half by the pendulum right um i don't feel like that was that part was really portrayed well enough in the movie. No, not at all. I mean, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a choice at all. It was the only people that ended up in the pit were people that were thrown in the pit. And the, and then pendulum was just there as like a, you know, a suspense tactic. Right. And once again, Vincent price shining through, you know? Yeah, no, yeah. He did a great job. Yeah. Cause he also had to, you know, he had played his, his crazy torturer dad. And then you had to play, you know, the, the tortured son of that dad, and then he had to be the possessed version of the son with the dad's ghost. Right. Now, do you see any correlation between Pit and Pendulum and Saw? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it probably built the foundation for that. I'm sure there were other steps <laughs> in the middle there. You know, but I didn't think it went, I don't think it went straight from Pit and the Pendulum to Saw, but I think there were steps in the middle that that led up to that. But I mean, essentially, yeah, I mean, it's the same kind of story, you know, somebody trapped in a room, right. somebody put them there in some kind of peril and, you know, and they, right. and they may or may choice. not be able to get out. Right. Yeah. And I know there was a pendulum in one of the saw contraptions. I don't recall which saw it was maybe number four. I think it was saw 14. <laughs> maybe. Oh, <laughs> um, but no, I mean, overall, I, I think, obviously, with, with a movie, you can't just have something sit there in almost complete darkness, right? We're not going to be able to really see that well enough. Yeah, it would just be a black screen with a person narrating over it, you know, with maybe some machinery clunking in the background. That would be, yeah, if they tried to stay close to the story as possible, that would have to be it. Now, would this have been better as a radio broadcast, then? Uh... I don't know about that. Radio broadcast is kind of hard to tell between like what you're thinking and what you're saying. Right. Because it sounds exactly the same. I mean, you can, you can do it obviously, but you have to lay like, you know, you have to like force it to be an aside otherwise. But um, I mean, I think it would be a good radio broadcast. You could do it. Well, definitely. Okay. I mean, yeah, I said, I think a lot of, a lot of horror, like I said, Saw and stuff like this, we do see elements of some of these other things, right? You know, and kind of just going back to House of Usher, I forgot to mention it, is, you know, that's one of Mike Flanagan's next upcoming series he's doing is The Fall of the House of Usher. And I think he's going to do a, a good job. We can discuss that later on, but I just, I know that's coming out at some point. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, yeah, because it's going to be a show. It's going to be like at least a season long show based on a white, you know, 10 paid story. So that's going to be interesting and how that fleshes out. But I mean, I've liked everything he's done so far. So, I mean, I have faith that it'll be good. It's just it'll be interesting to see where it goes. 
Yeah, this, I think a lot of liberties obviously are going to take for it. Um, but you know, uh, we can go from there, and we you know we the next movie in 1962, the premature burial. Yeah, now this one I did not watch at all, and it sounds like I, I <laughs> dodged a bullet on that one. So I'll let you I'll let you run with yes. it. Yes. Um. So you know, we can briefly discuss the story. Is uh, I, I feel like a very common theme with with Poe stuff that we especially that we read for for this recording is people obsessed with being buried alive. That's a couple, you know. I think Hasso, this is going back to Hasso, Usher, you know, buried his sister alive or thought that, you know, that was a recurring theme. Um, and the premature burial is a guy who has, I don't know what you want to call it. I think they call it swooning in, in the story that he would, or like a living death where he was still technically alive and is having episodes where he is unable to move. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this was one of Poe's like real life fears because it happens in a lot of his stories. Right. There's I, I, most of them that deal with death or uh, mausoleums. Is there's always someone that they find premature buried. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, and especially with this being the first half of the 1800s, and science, uh, you know, medical science, Western medicine, not be, you know, kind of starting to take root. Right where we have physicians, we just don't declare people dead. And I think, you know, this worked as the story because I think that was a fear. I mean, you know, do we think that the, you know, rope tied inside a coffin with a bell on the outside for bell toes is fiction? Or do you think that actually happened? I did. I mean, I've seen, um, like, you know, like drawings of the designs of coffins like that. And I think... They were. I mean, I think it was more of a rich person thing. Is I mean, like you know, the middle class, lower class people could not afford that. I'm sure they would would love it, you know, because I'm sure it was a very real fear for them. Um, but yeah, it was more like of selling that stuff to rich people because they have disposable income and they'll spend money on it. And it's very easy to scare people into, hey, what if you get buried alive? You want this bell to save you, kind of thing, right? Right. So yeah, yeah, I think they definitely did exist. They just wasn't a mainstream thing simply because it was too expensive. And I think the drawings, weren't they patents? I believe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I believe so. And so, you know, obviously a short story. The guy has these episodes. He is obsessed of not being buried alive. Um, I believe his dad was. Like, I, I believe someone in his family also was buried alive, and they didn't find out until they dug it up a little bit later that that happened. So he obsessed staying and his group of friends that, knew his wishes that he wanted to have the rope in there with a bell attached to that, that he wanted to be able to tell people, Hey, I'm alive. Come get me out of here. You know, and that kind of happens in the story. Um, like it was almost kind of a fake out where he was, he traveled outside his known area. Right. And he had one of his episodes and he thought he was confined in a box. And I believe it turned out that he was just on a ship. Right. Is that the story I'm thinking of? Uh, yeah, it sounds right. <laughs> yeah. Um, which did not happen in the movie. Um, it, it, they kind of went into a more elaborate setup where he had the mausoleum that he had the like coffin with the door that would slide open if he pushed hard onto it or that he had like escape rooms 
built into the crypt that he was able to escape in the movie, right? Um, so that's kind of what he was doing. He's like, I'm setting this all up. He's letting his wife know. He's letting his doctors know that this is where when I die, or if you think I'm dead, put me here and I can come out. Um, but to, you know, elaborate on, on the story, you know, they had his wife having an affair with one of the doctors who presumed announced him dead. So it kind of came a revenge story in the movie where they buried him, not where he wanted to be. Um, and that grave robbers came and were digging him up for another doctor colleague to test experiments and look at his condition more. He would kind of want to scare him into that and have his wife think he's dead. And he ends up killing the uh, grave robbers and, you know, then start exacting revenge on people that did this to him, the doctor, and then going after his wife and buried her alive knowingly. Um, and then he gets shot by the other doctor that his wife was having an affair with. And it's all just kind of like a revenge story in here, which you know, obviously a big leap from the story. Um, but it worked. I think it worked pretty well overall. And it, I believe this is one of the few movies that Vincent Price was not in. He was not in this movie. You would think that maybe he would have played the main guy. Guy is his name, right? Right. But no, it wasn't Vincent Price. I don't know why. But it, it was it was an okay story, just like a revenge story. Well, I, maybe maybe that's why I skipped it. I don't know. I looked through these, <laughs> and I watched the ones that looked the most interesting to me, and that one did not strike my interest, so I skipped over it. So you had to you right. had to deal with it. Yeah, but I mean, like I said, it for for that to to be a thing was I want to say when I was doing the research that people didn't know if this actually happened or not, and that like Poe had the right to. To people at Reddit saying, no, this actually didn't happen. This is a work of fiction because, you know, this is like I said, early 1800s that maybe fiction like this wasn't a common thing for the general public to have, right? Well, yeah, but I think it was also a very real fear for people of that time. And if you're writing a story to remind people of it, they're going to freak out. Right. I think that was more what it was. You saying, no, no, it's fiction. Calm down, relax. The world's right. not ending. Yeah. So. I'm just wondering, you know, what kind of came first? Was it just his fear or the story kind of spark those patents and the idea, you know, you know, does, does reality be, become works of fiction or based on fiction at that point? Well, yeah, I think it was just the state of the medical profession at that time. So where it was very real, like, you know, they, people would do, oh yeah, they're dead. And then they'd wake up an hour or two later. I think it happened often enough, not often, but often enough to where people were scared. You know, like, oh, wow, I really don't want to do that. Right. You know, like they do like in the stories where they'd go up to him with the mirror and they'd hold the mirror underneath their nose. We're like, oh, it didn't fog up. They're dead. I mean, that was it. That was like their official cause of death. Like, oh, no, they're dead. No, no fog right. on the mirror. It's over. Right. Which I think I think they use the same mirror in all these movies, too. Oh, yeah. I, think yeah. That was I mean, I, I'm pretty, <laughs> pretty sure it was the same house. They just like, you know, moved stuff around in the house because I've seen the same decorations in, in there. They're just in different places. 
Yeah, I, f- I feel like, especially the staircase, that railing, uh, like when the fall of House of Usher was going on, the house was starting to collapse. Like he mm-hmm. breaks that railing. I'm pretty sure I saw that railing definitely in at least one other movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, the the, fr- the trees in the front yard and that front door of that castle was used at, at least three times that I saw. So which, I'm sure it was more know, than it, that. Which makes sense because these were big set pieces. Really made it seem like they're big set pieces. You know, it takes a lot to build the stage for these. Right. Um, okay. You ready to move on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the next one is Tales of Terror, also came out in 1962, um, and this one took a, a slightly different path where it actually did three different stories all packed into that same hour and a half time period. Um, they did, like, you know, it's short film versions of, of a few different stories. Um, the first one um, is based on Morella. The second one is, is based on a kind of amalgamation of the Black Cat and the Cask of Amontillado. And the last one is uh, your favorite story of the facts in the case of M. Valdemar. Yes. Um, now, the Black Cat, I'm going to talk uh, later because I watched a lot of these Black Cat adaptations. <laughs> and I'm going to go over a lot of those later on. Um, but I will say it's this one is mostly the Cask of Monsolato anyway. <laughs> yes. um, the Black Cat. I mean, there is a, a an alcoholic guy who doesn't like the cat. And then at the end, the cat is is in the bricked up wall, and that's pretty much the only similarity. the The rest right. of it is the cask of Montalado. So, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, and and each each one of these short shorter stories in the movie has been surprised. He was in. All oh yes, movie, right? yes, yeah, correct. Absolutely. They had to make up for the last one where he wasn't in it at all, so <laughs> right. they made him three different characters. Right. Um. So. Of, of the of the three there, which which one do you like the most of the three stories? Um, I would say I mean I mean the Black Cat, which is really the Casco Montalato, but I mean I, I like that one the most. I mean I think it was interesting that uh, you know Vincent Price was not the main character in that story. Um, he was kind of like a secondary character, a supporting character, if you will. Um, and Peter okay. Laurie was a was the oh, main yeah. character, also a staple of, of horror. Right, right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, that one was my favorite just because, I mean, there was like no, um, the guy was just a jerk. I mean, the guy was just, he was just a bad guy. (laughs) I mean, there's like no, like there's there's nothing good about him in the whole story. I don't think he did one good thing. No, not at all. all. Um, Like I said, you know, the facts in the case of N. Valdemar, you know, Vincent Price is the old guy who's dying from a painful disease. I don't know if it ever said. I think they said his what? He's old. He was dying from old. Dying from old. Yes, he's dying from old. <laughs> um, and we had uh, Basil Rathborn, who we see as in some horror, but more of Sherlock Holmes. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see him in there. Um, like I said, you know case i don't i don't think i read um recently i know i read it but like i said it's the idea of it the hypnotism the trance and kind of like coming out of the vegetative or zombie state to exact revenge and, mm-hmm. you know kind of like i would say probably and that that one that part of it was the most graphic if you will because he had the oozing body falling on top of 
the doctor, right? Right. And I think that was pretty big. I, I mean, yeah, we had scratches from cats. We had a little bit of blood. And, you know, horror was starting to take shape of what we could show, what we couldn't show. And they show blood. There's very, very bright red blood, like, you know, that we wouldn't see again really into the 80s to get rid, you know, get past the R rating. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I think that not blood colored blood. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, back in those days, they were going for more theatrics and you wanted, you know, the blood to be bright red. So everyone knew exactly what it was. And yeah, in the 80s is where you started to get like, no, we want it to look real. So that's when you get into like, you know, the darker, you know, Tom Savini formula blood. Right. But as you know, as well, like Blood 2, the blood's right on the walls. They couldn't have that much red. So they had to make it green and black. And I think, you know, the censors really got a hold of stuff in the 80s because of all the gore. Mm-hmm. I mean, making it so realistic looking. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a that's a trick in in video games too. Is you know, if you want to make it, you know, not M, just have the enemies bleed green or right. white. Oh, it's just sweat. <laughs> it's right. not blood. It's sweat, or 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 it's an alien, so it's okay. Yeah. They get rid of that M title. It's, it's, it's right. black for robots. And yeah, it's like oil. That. Right. Yeah. Right. Um. So yeah, like you're saying with the black cat though, we have the kind of the main premise is he's he's a drunk, doesn't like the cat. But yeah. they brought Vincent Price's character in there to be, I, I think, a, I, I think a very comedic. This is like a more this is a more comedic story of this movie, right? Oh yeah, Especially yeah. This the, is definitely the, the comic chasing. relief, right? The yeah, this is definitely the comic relief in the middle, right? <laughs> yeah, which Peter Lorre was good for for comedy, but like I said, Vincent Price. It just seemed like he hammed it up a lot. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, he was he was doing his best theatrical comedy. Yes, right. Just yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, I, I think I think these worked at, as a whole because they're not long stories, and we didn't have to have the hour twenty, hour thirty of these. I think they made a really good choice of you know condensing these down to. You know, let's say thirty minute movies, right? Um, and that's something I think we, you know, we discussed later is how we can do this again. It's kind of where I'd like to see this direction take. Um, I really think they should have just continued this. They could have covered more post stories across the board if they'd done more tales of terror. But as far as I'm aware, I don't recall very many movies doing that. They had three different stories taken place there's more of a tv show that would do that or a serial that you'd watch before a movie right right yeah i mean the only ones that really come to mind is like um the twilight zone or like tales from the dark side you know like yeah where they had like multiple different mini stories um inside of one but yeah i mean yeah there's there's been a few that do it but yeah i mean not enough i would say like they're usually usually pretty good um but yeah, I would say the first one, the first one, the Morella, I, th- I thought that one was probably the weakest of the three. I didn't think there was anything all that special and, and great about it. It was it was a good lead in, you know, to get you, I guess, used to what you're watching. But yeah, the other two were in my eyes. Well, I mean, it's if we look at think about it that way is it's a vengeful spirit story, right? Mm-hmm. That the mother dies in childbirth, that birth that the father couldn't bury his wife for after Twenty-six years or something like that. Yeah, she looked pretty good for being twenty-six years rotten. Right. 
And I think that's also a, a big thing that they show a lot is either they're buried alive or they're decaying bodies. Yep. You know, and especially for Valdemar that his body decayed. So it was kind of like, yeah, it's a good intro to revengeful spirits that kind of ties into the black cat and then further the body decay that was there. I was like, for the 60s, considering what we see less than a decade later, pretty big, I think, for horror movies to kind of show that. Yeah, it was definitely the start of, of what came later in the, you know, in the 70s and 80s. The foundations, lay in the roots. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I would never, I've never expected that from Roger Corman. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we can go right into the next movie. Um, yeah, the Raven, which is yeah, the probably the most famous of of Poe's works. Uh, Nineteen sixty-three. I did not watch this one. I think I did. I did not watch it simply because I knew it would be the most famous and most popular, and I didn't uh, want to bother, but. Um, I'm assuming Vincent Price is in it. Is that correct? I did not watch this one either. (laughs) Because it's such a a more well-known story. And uh, I I think, you know, we all know the story. He's lamenting over his lost love, right? Right. And and, and then he's being tortured by what we consider the spirit in the Raven. Would you agree? I mean, was that? Do you think that's a good kind of yeah? No, being... Yep, that's the synopsis. <laughs> right? It's yeah, a guy who's being tortured by a bird who's not really doing anything, only reminding him of his own, you know, right inadequacies. And so I think the Simpsons probably did better, but yes, it yeah, Vincent Price is of course in it, and wow, we also have supposedly. Look this up. Peter Lorre is as, as well. Is he? Boris, Kar- Boris Karloff. Wow. Maybe I probably should have watched this one. Then. I, I think I need to go back and watch this. <laughs> um, And Jack Nicholson. As a baby? <laughs> as a baby in So. It's just it's hard it's hard to see Jack Nicholson and Vincent Price being in the same era. So it is weird to think about because I think most people think of of you know Jack Nicholson being one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Clearly, this obviously he has. Well, I mean, he was around first. That was definitely his breakthrough role, right? But yeah, that wasn't until what seventies seventy five. Yeah, so I mean, here you go. Here's just another. Oh no, Little Shop of Horrors. Before that, he played okay. the Bill Murray character. He played the guy obsessed with uh, the that was masochist. That, yeah, that loved going to the dentist. Okay, all right. So yeah, that that's the character. So you know, just we're already seeing some starts of a trend that we would see later on of big act, well-known actors starting in horror. Right. Pretty amazing. I, I need to go back and watch this now. Some big names. Yeah. Like I said, I probably should have. I just didn't. I was, well, you know what? I mean, the reviews are pretty middling on it. I think that's what it was. I was trying to pick out, you know, the <laughs> the, the the pick of the litter by saying, oh, which, which ones are the best rated? I'll watch those. 
time. We'll go back, watch it. Maybe we can revisit even if we discuss actors and first horror movie roles as a topic. We can easily, you know, mark this down and take note of that. Hey, here we are. Here's Jack Nixon that we know today. You know, because I'd say, you know, Peter Laurie, Boris Karloff, Vincent Price are already known for their horror and not much else outside of that. Right. Well, yeah. We'll swing back to that one. Yes. Um, and the other one that came out in 1963 is interesting uh, because it's called The Haunted Palace, which is a Poe poem, but the story is actually based on an H.P. Lovecraft story called The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Um, I, at the time, I did not know that, <laughs> so I didn't watch it, although I probably I probably should have, knowing you know we're, we were going to talk about both of these authors today. I probably you know should have watched it because it's a, an interesting crossover of the two, um, but I did not. So yeah, so I, yeah, I watched this, and you right away. I mean the the atmosphere very Roger Corman. The atmosphere fits very well into here. Now we did a little bit more research as to why we adapted H.P. Lovecraft. Like I think this might be really close to the first Lovecraftian adaptation we got. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I think the the I think the very first one was that die monster die die monster die. Okay, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Um, but the Haunted Palace is you know Vincent Price. He plays um, Charles Dexter Ward, and he then you know he essentially gets burned at the stake for being a wizard, right? Um, and then you know he he curses the town because of it, and so. Randomly, you know, somehow the emperor is back. Type of scenario: his great grandson or great great grandson, 110 years later, happens to stumble away into the town, which, believe it or not, is called Arkham. Which is another dead giveaway that this is H.P. Lovecraft because Arkham comes up in a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, it's Arkham and Miskatonic are the two th- things that he likes to say, right? So, um, and it, it essentially, what's happening is we have another big horror right here of Lon Chaney Jr. playing one of the friends who's trying to bring back the ghost of their friend that died. And they happen to reach from the Necronomicon, which huge H.P. Lovecraft stuff. Most of his stuff revolves around the Necronomicon a lot of the story. Um, So he's getting his movie is he's getting his grandson to stay in the house. The friends are carekeepers of the house are trying to convince his great-grandson to stay there, and he's able to move his spirit that was burned at the stake 110 years ago into his you know, descendant's body and start taking over. Um, and he eventually does take over his body, and he, then he goes on and starts murdering the descendants of those that killed him. Another revenge story, but haven't we seen this quite a bit? Don't we see this in legacies at this point in time? It's been in the past 50 years of horror movies where you have a descendant that is being influenced or swayed by someone that was wrongfully, not necessarily wrongfully killed, but killed, and then exacting revenge. I think that is we're seeing another staple of horror in this aspect from this movie. So, as I said, it's a very interesting, interesting take. Um, and I I wonder why 
there's so much post stuff that we we lean very heavily into Lovecraft. Maybe it's because of the, you know the story that we the, the kind of building of wrongful deaths, special spirits, and kind of like out of body possessions for horror, right? I can I can see them doing that. Yeah, or maybe they just had a script laying around. They were like, "Hey, quick, give me a give me a, give me a spook, spooky, scary script. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a Poe movie out of it. Maybe that's it. It's entirely possible. I mean, you know, we're you know six into the Roger Corman, you know, the American International Picture production of this thing, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe they're kind of winding down. Maybe they weren't getting the funding. I honestly don't know why they did that, but it worked. It it says you know the title Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace, which Great title, yes. Story. Hmm. Well, yeah. There, there's a few of those. Uh, there, again, in the black cat <laughs> discussion, we'll have later. I'll, t- I'll talk about that. But uh, yes, that had to happen a, a whole lot. Yeah. Um. You ready for the next one? Uh yeah. It's <laughs> next one. I had a hard time watching it. I have it on DVD. I had a hard time watching it again for some reason. I really don't know. Why. Really? See, I I really like this one. It's uh the Mask of the Red Death. Came out in, in 1964. Um, the the basic plot is is that some um, you know big mean noble person um, that has a you know his castle and rules over his little kingdom. Um, he finds out that there's a plague, uh, literally called the Red Death, um, which you know just causes people to bleed out of their face and die. Um, right. So he he <laughs> retreats back to his castle to stay away from the plague, and he invites all of his um, you know underlings, the other you know noble people of his domain to come in and hide with him in the castle. Um, like you know, while they're, while yeah. they're right, while they're waiting out this plague. Right. Um, now the movie, you know, introduces some other elements like this peasant girl that he brings in and tries to make a princess weird. You know, she's a big part of the story, but she doesn't exist in, in the original short story, but she's a big part of the movie. Um, but yeah, essentially. So, you know, he's just, you know, being a big mean jerk, making people do, you know, horrible things because he can, because he's the leader and, you know, right. Uh, the movie leans heavily into him being an, uh, you know, an, a Satanist, like a self-proclaimed Satanist. The story doesn't specifically say that at all. He's just an ass in the story. Right. And he punishes, he punishes those that follow Christianity and tell him to, you know, the, the, what the, the peasant girl's boyfriend and father that he wants them to fight to the death. You know, spare right. and see where your God is now type scenario. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just, you know, torture stuff. And and the, the main story, um, they talk, you know, basically the party takes place in like these seven colored rooms, which they do touch on in the movie. You know, they, they go into like the yellow room, the purple room, the white, you know, um, they're there and they party in those rooms, but it's not a big focus of it. Um, in the movie, the the last room is where all the bad stuff happens, and in the story, they're all scared to go in the last room because it's all black. You know, it's all black with like red light, so it looks really evil. So everybody's scared to go in there. So of course, that's where the bad stuff happens. In the movie, it's just kind of like, yeah, this is where the bad stuff is. Now, isn't there also a clock that's chiming like every hour? Like when it chimes, yeah. they stop, and, and for whatever reason, right, um, mm-hmm. and they go on there. Yeah, they all stop and watch the chimes, and then they go right. back in after it's done. Right. Um, yeah, and then um, in both sides of the story, this person in red shows up to the story, um, and he assumes that it's, you know, Satan, his buddy. 
Right. Yes. Uh, but in this story, in the story, they're just like, oh, who are you? Who are you? And they keep, you know, and he keeps getting away from them. And then eventually when they trap them um, in this, in the original you know, story, they pull his mask off and he's just gone. He just disappears. Right. And then they all have, and then they all have the, the plague and they all die. Um, and then in the movie, it's more like, you know, uh, they kind of, I guess, suggest that it's Satan, that he's not really actually happy about his person that describes himself <laughs> as his follower. And he just wants to get rid of him because he's given him a bad name kind of thing. But then there's like all the other people in the different colored robes anyway. So who knows? Maybe it's just like, well, the, that figure also when the, uh, the boyfriend of the peasant girl that he takes in escapes, mm-hmm. he talks to him and he thinks it's God. Right. Right. And then I yeah, know well, that, I don't, I don't know if he thinks it's God, but he definitely thinks it's somebody that's in charge or somebody that's powerful, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, it's you know, it, it's you know, funny because here we are, twenty twenty two, talking about the the fear mongering, the isolation, quarantine of of everything it did. Which, if this guy was so scared of the Red Death, why would he bring people from the village where there was known cases of the plague or the Red Death? And bring him into the his his palace, right? That makes no sense to me, <laughs> right? Well, like I said in the original story, the the weird you know the commoner to princess subplot is not there at all. I don't know, I don't understand. I guess they bring it in there to kind of show you you know an easy introduction as to like okay, you're the new person. This is we're going to introduce everything to you. Basically, we're introducing the audience to that through this person. I think is what they were aiming for, right? But as as you know, we've discussed too is you know the introduction of something that's there. Then we have this other subplot from Hop Frog, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which was a completely separate story of uh, of Pose, and they kind of intermingled it into this, where you have a jester who is um, I don't know how to describe him. <laughs> Uh, but, funny guy. you know, he funny guy, yeah. So he the, the gesture is, you know, his he has a girlfriend that's a dancer or that he likes, and he's being tortured by this other nobleman that is invited to this party. Um, and, and convince him to dress up as an ape, a great ape. Um, in the story, they're orangutans, right? And mm-hmm. he got like eight of them to do it and then tie them up, you know, as a joke and then kind of lit them on fire to escape. Um, you feel like with all the noblemen that were there, they could have, have gotten more of the closer to the number of the king, obviously as a king in the story versus the prince, to have the eight great apes? Or, you know, how do you think that fit into that? Do you think it was a weird subplot? Do you think it kind of melded nicely into it? Um, I mean, it was fine. I mean, you know, there, there was the big focus on the masquerade ball. And that was kind of the reason why he dressed up as the ape because he wanted to do something fun and interesting for the for the masquerade. So I mean, I guess it kind of fit in there. Um, I mean, it was kind of odd that he just you know murdered a noble person in front of all the other noble people, and they were just fine with it. They're all just but, laughing at him. Yeah, yeah. It's like eh, should realize that one of you is probably going to be next, and you probably shouldn't <laughs> be taking so much pleasure in this, but. Right, and I mean, in, in fairness, I can't imagine that story fitting into a whole movie. So no. maybe they were just trying to grasp at anything that they could pull into it, and it's both about noblemen, right, or princes, kings, and so it does kind of tie into it, but it just seems 
out of place. A little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it seems like almost kind of like a weird little comedic element in the middle of like a weird Satan story. Right. Now, something that's coming to, to that came to mind when we talk about like, the seven rooms. Do you think this could be the seven circles of hell that they descend to? Each room um, representing the next layer. It's possible. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't think they really went into, <laughs> you know, if there was the different feeling or different things happening in each room, it was just, you know, a different color. Right. And, you know, I never, they had different themes in the room. Yeah. But I know he, I know the prince, Vincent Price's character was following him because he's like, oh, look, it's my friend Satan. I'm going to follow him. Hey, everyone, there's Satan. I'm going to come, you know, come say hi. Right. Right. I mean, so, you know, we're, we're approaching towards the end of this era. How do you feel overall the movie was? I know when I, when I got the DVD, I had a hard time saying I liked it. I first watched it. And quite honestly, I had the same hard time <laughs> this time as well. Um, no, I mean, I liked it. It, it kept me interested. It was, it was fun enough. Um, you know, seeing everybody in their, you know, hose and puffy pants and all that stuff. But it was, no, I, I thought it was good. I thought it was a, a good performance. Um, I mean, it kept me interested. I wasn't falling asleep. I enjoyed it. Okay. I thought it was good. So I don't know what it was. I'm like, oh, man. Like, this, to me, this is the weakest thing for Vince Price that I've seen. I agree. I don't know why. I can't explain why. It's just, I, I really don't know. <laughs> that's fair you can you can make whatever judgment you wish <laughs> um and i think this next one i don't think either one of us watched no. that was the tomb of legia legia, legia. i don't know how to say yeah but yeah yeah about 64 i know i didn't watch it i i believe you just mentioned that you didn't watch it either correct it, it's it, it was one of the last things i had to kind of watch and it just Time frame was I was not able to do it, but you know it's it's about another black cat. <laughs> yeah, surprise, surprise, right? Which obviously <laughs> you know, this also stars Vincent Price, um, right? And the you read the story, right? Yes. Okay, so we can discuss the story at least. I'll have to go back. Um, yeah, so the Midnight Movies double feature pack, it was an evening of Ergon Poe and the Tomb of Lygia, whatever you want to say, however you want to say it, right? Mm-hmm. So, I said, let's go through this. We can go through the story real fast. So, essentially, um, what happens is Vincent Price's wife dies, right? And... So he remarries, and his dead wife essentially is coming back for kind of revenge, or kind of trying to stop that marriage from happening. So that's, I mean, close to what the story is about. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. That's that's a that's a good synopsis. I mean, it, once again, we're just kind of into the whole revenge after death, spirits unrest type scenario again. Which, like I said, is a very common thing of of, of Poe, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a theme that comes up over and over again in his uh, in his stories. Now, how did you how did you feel about the story as a whole, though? Um, 
I mean, it's not one of my favorites. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, it, it was just kind of a, you know, like, a, again, it's a story that's been done, you know, even before this time, even before his time, it had been done of, you know, just, you know, a marriage and a wife of being upset and trying to stop it from happening. I don't know. It just never really did anything special for me. I, I liked a lot of his other stories better. This one was definitely at the bottom of the pile. Right. But, I mean, it, it also introduces something we didn't really discuss is hallucinations. Um, opium played a huge thing in a lot of these stories, too. At least mm-hmm. in the stories. Not really discussed in the movies, but opium, you know, there's a lot of, you know, is this reality? Is this hallucination? And most of these stories, and most of the movies, too, you know, especially the ones that we're discussing a little bit here in the Black Cat, where there's a lot of hallucinations of people not knowing you know, if it's real or not. Kind of like something that's not on here that we discussed is like the Telltale Heart, right? I think mm-hmm. we all know it because we know the last words of it from my generation, probably because of The Simpsons again, where Lisa buries someone's project that's about the Telltale Heart. And you know, he, in, in that story, you know, he's the only one able to hear the beating heart of the man with the evil eye, as he called it. He stalked for like a week to determine his sleeping patterns to kill and then bury him. Which sounds very familiar, like another story, right? Right. So, <laughs> um, you know, and it's just, I, I think the, the, I don't want to say the, the terror, horror, suspense from the story stems from you know, especially in those days where people died young. You know, and you know, do you remarry? Do you not when you're when you're thirty? Now, Vincent Price's forties and fifties in these movies, but still, it's a very common thing of the remarriages, right? Or marrying for wealth, like uh, like we had in the in the facts of the case of right that necessarily marrying for wealth and older people. So, I I think. It's it's an okay story where you know the wife comes back and then essentially possesses the new bride or transforms into the new bride and kind of takes over the body. Yeah, it also goes back to that um, that Morella story, the the very first story of uh, right, <clears throat> um, the tales of terror, which is the same kind of thing to where you know the the ghost. Well, it wasn't it wasn't a a, a wife and new wife thing. It was a, a mother, mother and daughter, daughter thing, right? But same basic story. Right. I mean, so I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I know going through and kind of read the entire Poe book again, which I haven't done in a very long time, is just reading it that fast within this past week, you start to see the similarities across everything, I feel. Yep. No, yeah, you <laughs> definitely do. And that's, unfortunately, whenever you read like a short story, like anthology from any author, you're going to be like, Jesus, this guy talking about the same thing again? You know, because it would be like the, the same story told multiple different ways, right. you know. But I, I guess that's all part of the, the writing process. That's why you write short stories is you, you know, see what works and what doesn't. You know, kind of go right. from there. Um, I don't know if you've ever read any any Philip K. Dick short stories. In a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> but almost all of them are about drugs. And there's like, you know, so many of them are are about these same drugs. There's like weird competing hallucinogenic drugs in the future. And like, he's got entire collections, like multiple collections, just talking about these drugs. That's it. Right. 
So, I mean, yeah, very similar to, well, I mean, obviously I don't think Poe is that bad, but yeah, very, you know, they have, they have, uh, you know, plots or, or ideas that they kind of go over again and again and again and again, you know, trying to like find that, that magic version of the story that they really like, but they, so they just keep telling it different ways until it, you know, fits into a mold that they're trying to, to fit it in. Right. Now, do you think a lot of this is because, uh, you know, opium was a big thing. Barren Alive was a big thing. You know, spirits, you know, still in that phase of before modern medicine, we think about stuff like that. A lot of superstition still running rampant in this time frame. That this is kind of the audience that was expecting it. That's worked really well to the common person at that time. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, definitely a product of his time. I mean that was, I mean that's if you want to be a successful you know horror writer or you know horror filmmaker, whatever it is, you got to play off of the fears of of, of people. I mean, and you got to play off the fears of your present day people if you want to you know actually make a name for yourself or be famous. Right, and that's why in the fifties and sixties we had all the atomic age sci fi movies because atomic war was a big thing that people had on their minds at all times. Right. Hmm. Oh, very interesting stuff. I think it, for a work of their time, it works. And oh, yeah. Necessarily, uh, we'll discuss that <laughs> a little bit. But Yeah, I mean, it, it does. It just has to be twisted in certain ways. But, I mean, it can be done. But, yeah, we'll we'll discuss that later time. Right. <clears throat> um, and then just a, uh, another side note here. There's another movie that's sometimes put into that post cycle just because it was made by Corman. I think a lot of the same team around the same time. Um, and that is the terror it came out in 1963. Um, it has nothing to do with Poe or Lovecraft. Um, it just came out around the same time. So people kind of throw it into that same, you know, what they, what they, what they call the Poe cycle. So there's really only eight movies in it, but sometimes they say nine because they count this one, but this one doesn't actually, which this one also has Jack Nicholson. in. Oh yeah. <laughs> so as we're using the same cast, like, Hey, I have the cast. I have the set. Why not make a movie? Type of deal, right? Yeah. That's, Probably what it was. <laughs> Somebody threw him a, a script and said, "Hey, make this real fast." He's like, "All right, right." So, I mean, okay, over, are, we right, overall, are we ready? To... Uh, yeah, we go into your black cat. I'm saying overall, you know, being a, a little over 120 years after Poe wrote the stuff, I mean, it was an interesting thing that worked really well. That I don't think would have worked in the silent era of movies, um, but was different enough from the atomic age sci-fi b horror right so it was interesting that it took that long into movie making to, to get to where we're at but yeah as you your experiment of black cat is there's been a lot of work in that story <laughs> yeah yeah and that's that's why uh yeah i'm calling it um uh, experiments and adaptation and this one is going to focus on the black cat and i really i wanted to do this simply because I was looking at a lot of these um, adaptations and this one in particular struck me as interesting because I was looking at all the different versions that they've made and all the names attached to it, <laughs> you know, and all, all of the, the it's all the, basically the, the time frame that it's been done. And there's a, there's a lot of just interesting, you know, ways that this has been done. And I just kind of wanted to, you know, just go over the original short story and then go over all the different, you know, variations and how they are different right. from the original story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we'll talk about the original story. The black cat is fairly simple. Um, there's an alcoholic guy um, who has a cat who's like his best buddy. 
Um, right. He gets really drunk. Um, the cat, you know, kind of like blows him off and he gets really angry and he cuts the cat's eye out. Right. Yep. And shockingly, the cat now wants nothing to do. With it. Yeah. Right. Shocked. 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 Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can't imagine why. Um, so, of course, he's drunk again and he's trying to, like, cuddle with the cat. The cat runs away from him, gets angry, grabs the cat, ties it up in a noose and hangs it from a tree. Right. That'll show that cat. Right. So the the cat dies Um, in the process of the cat dying. His house burns down. Right. Okay. Now his house burns down. um, And then like, you know, in the ruins of the house, they see this like burned in kind of etching picture of the cat being strung up in the tree in the, in the ruins of the house. Okay. And then later on um, another cat comes around. It's the same exact cat. Only this one has like a white spot on his chest. And like the longer the cat's around, because, you know, of course, the cat still doesn't like him. The longer the cat's around, he keeps seeing images in this white spot on his chest. Um, and then eventually he, he sees um, like the gallows. This white spot has changed into the gallows. So he's like, oh, this cat's threatening me. So he goes to kill the cat again with an axe this time. Yep. Um, his wife tries to stop him, gets in the way. He kills the wife. Actually, so in order to. Yeah. 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 So in order to try to hide this, he he brings her down to the basement, you know, in a in typical Poe fashion. He does this in a lot of his other stories. Bricks <laughs> her up in the wall, right? So he bricks her over in the wall. Okay, you know, nobody will ever find her. Case closed. So later on, the cops come by because they're looking for his wife because, you know, she hasn't been seen. Uh, and he's like, oh, yeah, take a look around the house. She's not here. And then when they're in the basement, he's, you know, go by the wall. And then all of a sudden, you know, Meow! You hear this meow in the in the wall. So the cat, the cops are like, "Oh, what's in there?" So of course they tear down the wall. They see the wife and the cat was in there the whole time. Right. So the cat betrayed him again in the end. Okay, that's the the basic story. Yep. Now we're gonna we're gonna see. I did um, five different adaptations here, and we'll just kind of go over where they differ. Um, there were more than this. This wasn't all of them. There were more, but I, I tried to limit it to these five because I thought these were the most interesting. Um, there is a 1934 film called The Black Cat, and it says, as suggested by Edgar Allan Poe in the <laughs> in the very beginning of it. And I guess it's an apt title because this it does star <laughs> Boris Karloff. It does star Bela Lugosi. So, the, I mean, big horror names at the time. But literally the only thing it has in common is there is a black cat involved. That is it. There is literally nothing else similar about it. There's nobody that's drunk and hurting a cat. <laughs> nobody gets walled up in the wall. I mean, nothing. There's no similarities at all. Um, there is these bizarre scenes of like when Bela Lugosi's character sees the cat, he like has these like weird panic attacks where he has to like murder the cat. Huh. It's It's bizarre. Like the first time he sees the cat, he like puts his hands over his face, like, Oh my God. And he, of course, you know, <laughs> the bad, the bad guy is Boris Karloff. Right. And he's right. got this, just like collection of knives on his desk. Cause I mean, why not? Um, so he picks up this knife, throws it at the cat, kills the cat and no one reacts. <laughs> no one doesn't it cares at all that this cat, I mean, obviously the cat's a pet, right? Otherwise it wouldn't be in this house, but he just, you know, throws the knife at the cat, murders the cat. Everybody's like, Oh, well, cat's dead. Yeah, but that's it. That's 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 it. And then the cat like shows up later on and he does like the hands over the face one thing. And that's it. That's there's literally no other. 
similarities. So it was just a way to get another, just a way to get Karloff and Lugosi in the same room. Correct. Right. I mean, they did put Karloff in a very weird looking outfit. Like, I don't even know what that outfit is. He looks like, uh, I don't know, like a German art student, but it's like 1934. (laughs) So it's like before that, you know, cliche is out. I don't know. It's, It's weird. It's like a, it's the cross between like a kimono and a robe. And he's got like this weird pointy hair cut. That's it's, it's bizarre. That's the only thing. Yeah. It's the only thing interesting. I mean, there's interesting things because the Boris Karloff's character is like a serial killer who like keeps the women he kills in like, like cases and his like glass cases, like collector's edition cases in his basement. Um, though that I thought was kind of interesting, but yeah, well, nothing to do. Much like the last season of Dexter. <laughs> right yeah exactly it was exactly <laughs> like that you had a bunch of just women uh down there and that was i think that was the whole point of the story is like bell lugosi was like a prisoner it, it, it was originally a fort this this weird architect guy boris Karloff is the weird architect guy he like made his house into this old war fort um and it, i guess bell lugosi was like a, a prisoner in this war fort and Karloff was like the commanding officer so like after years he comes back um, to this fort, I think looking for his wife. Um, and, and you know, of course, Boris Karloff is like, "Oh, your wife's been dead for a long time," and he brings her to, he brings him to a case, and he's like, "See, look, here's your wife in this glass case." I mean, it's it's bizarre. Huh. Um, and then he's like, "So what happened to my daughter?" He's like, "Oh, your daughter's dead too." But he's like, "Well, I didn't put her in a case." Um, and then and then like later on, you find out that like he's actually married to his daughter, and he's like hiding her. And it's weird. It's bizarre. Wow. Yeah, it's a it's a weird movie. The movie itself is not bad, but as far as a adaptation of the Black Cat, it's an F. It's a it's a way off fail. But the movie itself is interesting. So it was inspired by the events that of someone <laughs> of someone reading the story of the Black Cat and retelling it to someone else, and then them writing the script. On right. <laughs> oh, one more thing I I forgot to mention about our Poe cycle. Um, the screenplays were written by Richard Matheson. You know who Richard really? Matheson is? No. The guy who wrote I Am Legend. Oh, so The Last Man with uh, with with our boy Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like almost all of them. Well, I mean, I don't know if all of them were, but all the ones that I watched were all the screenplays were done by Richard Matheson. I thought that was just an interesting side note. Huh. <clears throat> That's interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, so we're going into one of those now with the, the second adaptation would be the 19CC Tales of Terror, which we already discussed a little bit. Um, and as far as uh, an adaptation of the Black Cat, I think I discussed it before. The really uh, it is closer than the 1934 version. I will give it that um, there is an alcoholic. Um, he does not like his cat. His, it's, his wife has the cat. He does not like the cat. He yells at the cat whenever he sees it. Um, but then the cat kind of leaves the story. And then we enter into the Cask of Amontillado story. Um, and then the cat comes back at the very end, you know, because the Cask of Amontillado and the black cat share that same ending where somebody gets bricked up in the wall. Right. Um, yeah. So at the, end of, at the end of that story, it's like they both get bricked up in the wall. So the guy that originally gets bricked up in the Cask of Amontillado story and his wife from the black cat story both get bricked up into the wall. The black cat hides in the wall. Cops come over. You know, cat meows. They tear down the wall. They catch him because they're both in there. Right. And the the, the the love interest is Vincent Price. 
Uh, that's correct. How they shoot him, shoothorn him into this tales of terror. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Prince and Pride is the guy that's that's uh, wooing his his wife, right. Peter Lorre's wife. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So uh. Yeah. I mean, it's closer than the 1934 version because at least it has some real elements of that story in there. Um. But as far as most of the story, it just it basically cuts out the entire middle. It has the very beginning and it has the very end, and that's it. Um, yeah, but uh, so I mean, yeah, I wouldn't give it an F. I'd give it as far as an adaptation of the Black Cat, I'd give it a D. As far as overall, it was it was good. I liked the story, but as far as a Black Cat adaptation, we'll give it a D. Um, I will move on to the nineteen sixty six version, which was very hard to find. <laughs> um, it's it's a black and white, not well filmed version. Um, the acting is horrible. <laughs> uh, well, I will I will say the guy the the main dude in the story is pretty good, but the the woman who plays his wife is just bad. She is terrible. I mean, oh, almost unbearable to watch. But as far as the story itself, as far as adaptation goes, I will give it an A. It is extremely close. They follow every point in the story, every major beat in the story. They do follow. Only it's in like the modern, you know, rock and roll era of 1966. So as all movies of that time, you know, that are set in that time period, of course, he's in a bar and there's a live band playing and they're playing rock and roll music and there's kids dancing and, you know, women in fringe dresses shaking their ass in the camera kind of stuff. You know, like that's like the, that's just like the uh, era of the beach party where everyone had. Like, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was like all those movies in the 60s all had those scenes. Yep. Every single movie did, no matter what movie it was. There was there. And so, yeah, there was like they were playing rock and roll, you know, songs. They played like a Chuck Berry song and like a Bo Diddley song. Um, Yeah. So like when he was getting drunk as an alcoholic, because they they stayed very close to the the original story, he would be in this bar watching the kids dance and shit. And then he got up and danced for a little while, too. It's interesting. So it was Um, it it brought the story from early, you know, like 1825 ish, 20, 1830-ish into the modern era. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it was the same thing. Like he had this cat, and he loved the cat. It was kind of bizarrely how much he loved the cat. Like he was like loved the cat more than he loved his wife. Like he was hanging out with the cat and playing with the cat, and the wife was getting like jealous of how much time he was spending with the cat. It was weird. So anyway, yeah, he gets really drunk. The cat kind of blows him off, and he cuts the cat's eye out, just like the original story does. Um, you know, the cat kind of you know blows him off like that, and again. <laughs> Same thing happens. Only then he hangs it up in a tree. Only this time they kind of explain why the house burns down. Is he ha- he hangs the cat with an electrical cord, and then he electrifies yeah. it when the cat's in the tree, and that's what lights the house on fire. Um, they did not talk about the uh, the the image burned into the house, but I mean that is a minor right. point. Um, but yeah, and then the same thing is the uh, the cat comes back. <laughs> um. You know, he goes to kind of kill the cat with an axe. <laughs> His wife gets in the way. He kills the wife with an axe to the head. Exactly as the story. Uh, walls are up in the wall. Exactly as in the story. Cops come. Um, cat meows from the wall. Break down the wall. Dead wife and the cat. Um, but very, very close. Like I said, as far as quality of the movie, not good quality. <laughs> very, very bad. Um like I said, the acting of the wife alone is enough to just turn it off. It's just t- terrible. The the guy does a pretty good job though. Um, there's a weird scene where he goes into, um, you know, like after he kills the cat and the house burns down, 
it's like this weird scene where he finds out he has no insurance. And so he like has a breakdown because he can't pay for a new house. Um, and then they lock him in a mental hospital. Right. And there's this long extended scene of him like rolling around on this bed while being held down, you know, like they're injecting him with stuff and he's like screaming and moaning. Yeah. And then it immediately cuts to him being like clean cut and, and healed like immediately. There's no in between. There's no montage of healing. It's just, moaning screaming out of bed cut to clean cut all clean talking to the doctor and the doctor says yeah you can go home like that was it was a weird cut off there but um that was fun and then the very end of the story after the cops catch him um you know find the wife behind the wall he runs out the door jumps in his car and there's a car chase with like rock and roll music playing really loud again but other than that it's a it's a it's a very faithful interesting rendition of the story yeah but it was it's i mean it's worth watching if you if you want to watch black cat stories it's worth watching for that reason alone but it's you know better left to history I would say. I'm, just, I'm just going over the credits is these this movie is like the people's only movie right? <laughs> yeah no i mean it's definitely they, they should not have made another movie there's nobody in here i would say deserves to keep working in the industry because they're all bad right but but again, whoever made it, whoever wrote it and directed it, stayed extremely faithful to the story. So he must have been a big Poe fan. But yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, now we'll move on to the next one. The next one is 1981, Lucio Fulci, the great you know Italian horror filmmaker, Lucio Fulci. Um, this one is is interesting and bizarre. This one also took me a while to watch because it's in Italian originally, right? Um, and most of the versions I found that were in Italian didn't have subtitles or I think there's a dubbed version floating around somewhere, but I couldn't, I couldn't find it. I know you were helping me with yeah. that, but we eventually, we eventually got it. We yeah. eventually watched yep. it. Um, now in this movie, interestingly enough, the cat is the antagonist. The cat is the bad guy. The cat <laughs> is literally going around and murdering people. Okay. Like there's this weird thing. Of course, it's a weird Italian movie. So there's going to be weird you know goofy sex scenes in it where like this this young couple like locks themselves in like a pool house like refrigerator box i don't know i don't even know how to describe it it doesn't make any sense but they're like yeah there's a cot in here we're gonna you know we're gonna get it on in this thing you know right so they're they're getting it on and then they figure out oh the key is gone because there's only one key to get in and if you don't have the key you can't get out either so they're trapped in there and you know and the cat snuck in through the grates stole the key and then got out. I mean, why they couldn't breathe through the grate that has a hole in it. I don't know. They didn't, they didn't talk about that, but the cat stole the key so they couldn't get out. They all like suffocated in there. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's just one of the ways they killed them. There's one where um, there's this guy is walking home drunk from a bar and the cat like pushes him off this. He's in a construction site for some reason. And he, and it pushes him off of this like walkway he's on and he falls on a bunch of rebar dies um you know there's a bunch of like just cats hypnotizing people and making them like walk into traffic (laughs) there's a lot of bizarre things but the cat is the bad guy the whole time um and then there's this old guy who's got like these supernatural ghost powers like he can like record people like ask you know gravestones and ghosts questions and then he can record them and get their answers somehow evp um Right, right. Okay. But he also has like the ability to like he also has psychometry, like he can touch things and, and know, you know, things about the people that owned it and stuff like that. So the guy's just got like magic supernatural powers. They don't explain it. He just has it. OK, Um, 
So as the story goes on, they kind of like insinuate that he's able, he's the one controlling the cat because he has these magic ghost powers that he can make the cat do this stuff. But then as the story goes further along, you find out, no, it's just the cat. The cat's just evil the whole time. The cat was controlling him. So the cat the, was the almost, cat's evil. The cat was almost like a familiar, and, and right, playing right. into the whole supernatural suspicious of black cats and their powers and being familiars for wizards, which is sounds like right. Okay, kind of yeah, yeah. Those yeah, but they were played into that. Um, it does keep some of the original elements of the story. Um, he does uh, eventually, you know, when he finds out, oh, this cat is killing people that he's not supposed to be killing, you know, because. It's kind of leave it ambiguous as to whether he wanted people to die or not. But obviously the cat was killing people that he didn't want to. So his, uh, you know, solution is to drug the cat to put it to sleep, hang the cat from the tree and then bury it. Right. So he does the same thing. Yep. Rehangs the cat. And he buries it. His house does not burn down, but there is a weird drawing on the wall of the cat hanging in the tree. So like they kept that element of it where he hangs the cat, the cat, you know, the image of the cat being hanged shows up on the wall in the house, but the, the house doesn't burn down. Right. And then at the very end, um, you know, there's this woman um, who like kind of figures out what he's up to and what he's doing. And she goes over to confront him. Um, and, he, you know, the, the cat kills her. <laughs> <laughs> the, well, both of them do like both of them help each other kill her. Um, and then so, you know, to, obviously hide the crime. He, he, he does brick her up in the basement. So he keeps that element as well. The cops come over later, you know, of course, you know, the cat meows, they know that she's in there. They get her out. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, is it better than the 1934 version? Yes. It does have some elements of the original story in it, but they add so much wacky, goofy stuff in there that overall I would give the adaptation a C. Um, but the, the movie itself, even though it's in Italian, it is worth watching because it is just, it's bizarre. And especially if you like cats and you like seeing cats murder people, you should watch it because I mean, I don't like cats, it's fun. I'm so, I'm so <laughs> for that. But it's fun. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then the other one that I watched, this is the fifth out of the five is the 1990 movie, uh, two evil eyes. Now this one I thought was interesting because. There's two uh, stories told in the same one. Um, the first one is done by George A. Romero, um, and that's uh, the, the case of Dr. Valdemar, um, yep. your favorite story again. Yep. Um, and that one uh, stars Adrienne Barbeau. Right. <laughs> um, she is the, uh, the like an evil wife um, that's trying to steal all their husband's money. And then her like lover slash doctor is the guy who puts him in the um, hypnotizes, the, the, you know hypnotizes him, puts him in his trance, whatever it is. Um, and then the other half of it is a black cat, you know, retelling done by Dario Argento himself, um, starring Harvey Keitel and yeah. <laughs> Mr. McDowell from coming to America as, <laughs> as the, the, uh, the police detective that's Harvey Keitel's friend. Cause he's like a crime scene photographer, he, he, he's um, but he's a, a beatnik, especially with that hat he wears the entire time. Right? Yeah, yeah. Every time he's in, every time he's in photographer mode, he puts on a little French beret, which is bizarre. Um, and that one, uh, it does keep um, some of the elements of it. He is an alcoholic. He is a jerk, uh, but it's more focused on like him um, being mean to his wife, more or less, and just being an abusive kind of jerk. Um, and the, the cat is is there, and he does. Um, he doesn't quite stab the cat's eye out, but he does 
kill the cat. They don't show how. They show him like being mean to the cat, and then just kind of cut to like, oh, the cat's dead. You know, they just kind of suggest I that it's dead it's because he he put like his hands around his neck for the art book he was creating. So instead Correct. of hanging, he strangled it. And, right, yeah. right. But they, I mean, but they don't actually show it hanging. They don't show him killing the right. cat or, or right. whatever. Yeah. It's just not there anymore. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, of course, the wife is all distraught looking for the cat. And, you know, he's like, oh, I don't know what happened to your cat. And so, they're, you know, like looking for the cat. And eventually, I mean, <laughs> there's a bunch of weird, goofy stuff going on because it's an Argento movie, of course. Um, but at the end, <laughs> um, it is it is similar to where he, you know, the wife is, you know, trying to, like, leave him and escape um, and you know, he murders her with uh, not an ax, but a, what butcher knife, I think, or like a cleaver, uh, a cleaver and then a saw. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, but, and they do keep the element where he takes her body and he, and he walls her up, not in the basement with bricks, like in every other story, but like in his hallway yeah, with like, like just some drywall. Plaster. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's a very modern newer take right. you know, for 1990 <laughs> right yeah yeah so he like puts some drywall in a bookcase in front of her and then you know just just leaves her there um and of course everybody's looking for the wife looking for the wife and he, you know oh i don't know i don't know where she is you know and he, he tried to be all like elaborate with like you had like a mannequin in a car like waving to the neighbors to like oh yeah we went on vacation you saw me she was alive <clears throat> And then, uh, yeah, and then he like went on a fake vacation, and then said, "Oh yeah, she went on tour for you know music stuff. She's gonna be gone for months." You know, and I don't, I don't think anyone was fooled at all, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so they're all come over there, and then eventually they, you know, the cops go over there, um, and you know, they're just like in the the story, they they get closed as a cat, or no, actually, they do the whole search of the house, and then they leave, and then he comes back to get his autograph. <laughs> and then the cat One meows through the wall. Yeah. Oh, by One the way. <laughs> yeah. So then yeah, the cat meows pretty. through the wall. Yeah. Very, 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 very Masonish. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah. Oh wait, oh, wait. I missed the part where the cat climbed out of the uh of the the drywall and he had to cut it with a saw right. and kill it and then patch up the hole. Anyway, so the cat was supposedly dead again because of course it came back. Um, then they tear down the wall and then her dead body is in there with like weird hairless kittens yep. that apparently the other black cat left behind. And they, these kittens ate her dead body Yeah. so that Argento gets to have one of his, you know, half destroyed bodies. And I mean, there's a lot of those because there's there's a crime scene photographer. Right. So you get to have fun with all those bodies and stuff. But yeah, the one the the one with the cats eating her guts was right that was interesting and fun um so yeah as far as uh, an adaptation of the black cat you know i give it again a c i mean or maybe a c plus it kept a lot of the same elements in there but you know again it added so much weird goofy stuff to it that is kind of beyond it but the movie itself i thought was pretty now did you notice the hints to the other post stories in that in that black cat story well, yeah, the guy's name Usher. was Roderick Usher, Usher yeah. right? <laughs> well, it, it, sorry, they said it only said Rod Usher, but if you look at the credits at the end, his full name was Roderick Usher. So yeah, he had that right. that same name, and yeah, I'm sure there was more that I missed, but I did catch that one. The woman was killed by a swinging pendulum in the first opening of the crime scene. Yeah, yeah, the cut in half body. Yep. 
and then the person that died at the person that was buried alive at the cemetery. That other crime scene. Oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't catch so I don't know if I caught that one. That was just like another premature burial where, you know, he was seemed like it's just very quick glimpse. Seemed like he was was dead. You know, came wasn't dead, came out, buried his wife alive, and then was killed while she, while burying her, which is very premature burial. So I think right. you know, Argento did better of the two parts of incorporating other Poe elements into it. And <laughs> With the first part, if it being George Romero, the best he got was the essentially sloshy zombie <laughs> of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the typical <laughs> George Romero. But I mean, it was it was interesting. It was. I mean, it was a fun version of the story, at least. I, I mean, arguably, to some of the two, you know, great horror movies, right? Made two both. Right. Yeah, like I said, I and I had never heard of it, which I was like, that kind of shocked me when I was looking through these adaptations. I was like, I definitely need to watch this, seeing how these all these big name people are part of it, and I didn't ever even heard of it. So, right, and I I agree. I until you brought it up, I didn't know that it existed either until we you know you did that research. It's like that's amazing. Mm-hmm. With, with you two great horror directors with Adriana, whatever her name is, with you know. Adrian Barbeau, yeah, who was in you know the fog, a couple of things, and then you know Tom Atkins. Let's face it, Tom Atkins was <laughs> an 80s icon of horror, right? Yeah, were, you know, it's right, yeah. so it was made in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, more like it's close enough to the 80s. Route. Yeah, it's it's a free. Yeah. So I mean. Do you feel like we've gotten any or other adaptations that are coming out that really haven't come out that you think it could fit into here? Um, I mean, they definitely could. I mean, cause again, the closest one is that 1966 version and that was not done well. So, I mean, if you could just take that screenplay and just remake it with people that can actually act, <laughs> I'm sure it would be much better than these other ones. I mean, and the other ones, don't get me wrong. They're not bad movies. I mean, they're, they're, a lot of them are good movies. They're just, as far as adaptations of the original story, I would say not good. Um, but there's, they're definitely great movies, you know, like I, I, I enjoyed all of them. <laughs> now, do we want to talk? I don't think either of us seen it, but the Raven, right? John Cusack. <laughs> oh. um, yeah, I did not watch it. I mean, I was interested. I remember the previews came out. I was like, Oh, that's interesting. You know, I like Poe. I like John Cusack. Let's see where this goes. And the reviews were so bad. I was like, nope. Right. <laughs> and I, I never have bothered. Yeah, for yeah. just what it seemed like, it just seemed like, you know, John Cusack was Poe, and then there was copycat killers, if you will, that were killing people based off of Poe's stories. So he's brought into, like, consult, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was an interesting take, but I'm not sure if that was a good way to reintroduce us to Poe. Has it been a good number of years since we had adaptations of these characters right like i said on paper it sounded good but i mean the reviews were so bad like no not gonna bother (laughs) um yeah and the only other movie that uh that i watched that wasn't in those other groups was uh murder in the rue morgue (laughs) 
Um, so, uh, 1983 Bell Lugosi. Have you seen this movie? Do you know of this movie? No. Okay. <laughs> um, Murder in the Rue Morgue is, 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 it's not like a morgue as if I originally thought of it. Rue Morgue is like a street name in France. Apparently. Okay. I didn't know that until I was reading the story and trying to figure it out. So it just means murder on a street or on, on the name of a street. Um, now right. this is as far as, what the original story is 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 way off. The original story is interesting because it's more like it's just like a weird detective story. Right. It's like it's like one of those locked door mysteries, you know, where there's like people dead in a room, the door was locked from the inside and nobody knows how they died and how the the killer got out. Okay. Okay. And then the killer, you know, and of course in a lot of these stories with the detectives, you know, they go in weird directions. Um the the killer ends up being an orangutan that snuck into a window um and and stuffed the one lady into a chimney and then threw the other lady out a window and that was the story and this you know the detective in the story was kind of sherlock holmes-esque because i think this that was when the story was written i believe it was before sherlock holmes or at least around the same time um yeah so it was um you know it was he basically was like you know going through his like logical you know figuring out the clues of the scene and, and then he basically figured out that it was a monkey that did this, you know, and then they found the sailor who had a monkey and he's like, oh, yeah, that was a monkey. And so it was all thing. Now, the movie itself is uh, Bella Lugosi is in it. He's the only the big star because Bella Lugosi, they couldn't they, I guess, couldn't figure out how to fit him in that story. So they made up a whole new version where Bella Lugosi is this mad scientist. And he, I guess, is like his side hustle is working at a sideshow like a circus sideshow and he's got like this monkey now and then the monkey goes from like when they do close-ups of it it's like an actual chimp in a cage yeah. and then when they pull out it's a guy in a suit <laughs> so, and they're very obviously different but at least they tried um but and so he's like you know but goes in this weird spiel of like hey look at this monkey he's you know He's a monkey. Everybody's like, oh, scared, you know, because it's, you know, whatever old timey right. days. And they're scared of monkeys because they didn't have zoos with monkeys in them back then. Right. Um, and then he's got this bizarre, weird unibrow. It's like super thick and furry. <laughs> Not the monkey. Uh, <laughs> Bell Lugosi does. And it's just weird looking. But anyway, so his whole thing is, is he's like um, having the monkey kidnap prostitutes. And then he's bringing them into his like secret lair and he's trying to inject them with monkey blood. I don't know what he's trying to do with this monkey blood. I don't know if he's trying to make like a super soldier thing or something. I don't know. They don't really explain that, but that's what he's doing. And I mean, it ends up to where his monkey sidekick does end up shoving the lady's mom into a chimney. <laughs> so that, that at least does happen. But like the whole rest of that story is just, yeah, it's all just made up. I don't know if Bell Lugosi came in and was like, I got a great idea. I'm going to be a mad scientist. And they're like, well, there's no mad scientist in the story. Make it happen. I'm, I'm looking. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, and I'm going to have a, a unibrow. I'm looking at this artwork <laughs> and it looks familiar. I like the, especially the I mean, poster with the unibrow. Yeah, I mean, it looks familiar. Maybe I watched it at some point. I don't, I don't feel like I did, though. <laughs> Right. I, like I said, I was just kind of looking through it. I'm like, hey, Belagosi's in it. I'll watch that one. Um, and yeah, it's it's a bizarre, bizarre change of the story. Um, but yeah, the original story was not like a horror Poe-esque story. It was more of like, you know, it was more like a mystery. Okay. 
Um, and then they made it, you know, they added this mad scientist to add a darker element to it. I think, I don't know, whatever, as far as adaptation goes, it was not great, but it's worth seeing Bela Lugosi in a weird unibrow. Right. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> right. Um, and that's all the, the Poe movies that I watched or, or know of or can expound on. Right. Do you have any other ones you want to add to the list? Um, no, I don't think so right now. I mean, obviously, if we want to discuss, like, future remakes and stuff like that, we, obviously there's TV shows, there's radio broadcasts, there's, there's a well of stuff is there, but obviously we focus on, like, what we consider the quintessential first right. of these things, right? Right, we have to narrow it down or else we'll be talking all day. <clears throat> um so okay. So that will just roll on into uh to Lovecraft based movies. Yes. <clears throat> um and probably I would say arguably the most famous of those would be Reanimator. Oh, absolutely. Uh, by far. By far. Uh, Reanimator. Um I that's probably the first one I ever saw. I don't know if I ever recall like I said it being H.P. Lovecraft, never really thought much of it um, from that time until later than late 90s, early 2000s, where I ran across other items. But, I mean, Reanimator is, I, I would consider uh, a fantastic movie. I, I love, I love Herbert West. I, you know, I love, um, what's his name? The main guy. Yeah. The, the actor? Yeah, the actor. Jeffrey Toombs, oh, I think his name Jeffrey Combs. Combs, yeah. there we go. You know, obviously he's in like the 4400, and he became a very mainstay actor in, in horror, I'd say for a little bit, especially the 80s. Yeah, he's been around. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you could almost call Reanimator a modern-day Frankenstein, except more zombie than, than Frankenstein, right? Would you agree with that? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, the original story. I mean, the original Frankenstein story, Frankenstein was just a normal, it was a guy, you know? Right. I mean, he was a very intelligent guy, but he was just a guy. He had normal human intelligence. Yeah, He looked freaky, right, because he was, you know, stitched together from body parts, but he had normal intelligence. Now, in yeah, Reanimator, when they're brought back, it kind of seems like it depends on how long they've been dead. Right. <laughs> um, but even even, like, right after they died, they seem to come back with, like, a more basic animalistic version of themselves right so um like i said it's very 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 zombie like mm-hmm. um because he's able to re- reanimate just a head right which you know obviously we have some good old 50s and 60s b horror movies with you know the head and the pan you know the head that would die or the screaming skull or something like that yeah, there was there was the what, was it the brain that wouldn't yeah. die or yeah the head that wouldn't die well, or something that's like the that. Thing. Yeah. If you watch the MS3 of it, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's titled one thing and then they change it. It's like the title <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> um, but you know, would you say yeah, this is based off of Lovecraft, which is you know almost a hundred years, let's say eighty years after Poe, right? So kind mm-hmm. of we consider the next father of, of horror. Um, do you think this is kind of like the, when was writing kind of like the first idea of, like I said, I want to call them zombies, like the first example of that type of reanimation being a zombie, because at that point in time, zombie wasn't a 
person that was dead that was brought back to life, right? Right, yeah, I think, yeah, at that time, I mean, yeah, you're talking, you had, like, voodoo right. zombies. Right. that was a yeah, but, white zombie, it was right. a very classic zombie at that point in time. Right, right, right. But, yeah, they're not actually dead, they're just, put, they're, like, put in a trance, like, controlled right. kind of zombie. Right. And we consider, you know, George Merrill to be the godfather of the modern zombie, but, mm-hmm. I mean, I would argue that Reanimator, because it was written decades before that, would be maybe our first example of that type of zombie or the reanimation of a corpse in, in that fashion. Yeah. Yeah. A reanimation as the, just not being a normal person as being something else right. more animalistic, something else. Right. Well, right. because like I said, it's because you're able to just have a head, you know, zombies can be torn apart and still live. Well, I don't think the monster would survive that. So, right. Um, yeah, and I know, like I said, I remember, I couldn't tell you the first time I watched Reanimator, but I know I definitely, maybe it was on Monster Vision or late, you know, at the drive-in with, with Billy Bob or, or something like that. Um, but, you know, when do you think you were first introduced to works <laughs> of Lovecraft? Um, okay, well, yeah, the funny thing is, is that um, I thought I watched Reanimator for many years, many years. Okay. Um, and that was because of the the second movie that's on the list here um, is is made by like the same director, the same like team. It's the same cast. I mean, Jeffrey Combs is is, is the main character in it. It's the same woman that I think played the girlfriend in the movie. I yeah. mean, it's like the same cast, same everything based on H.P. Lovecraft. I assumed it was the same movie. I guess I was wrong. From Beyond was the one that I watched <laughs> now. For years, I thought that that was reanimator because whenever I saw like stills or, or whatever from the show, it always showed Jeffrey Combs. You know, they always mentioned, you know, Lovecraft. I'm like, yeah, OK, I've seen that. movie. I know what you're talking right. about. I just I guess I just didn't catch the the thing. So the, the, I've obviously seen bits and pieces of reanimator. It's kind of hard to miss if you're, you know, watching horror you know, as a horror fan. Right. right? Um, it's everywhere. But I didn't watch it all the way through until like a month ago. <laughs> Because I again, I had assumed that I had seen it all the time, but we were watching um, that documentary, the In Search of Darkness documentary, and, and they were showing scenes from that movie, and I'm like, wow, I don't, I don't remember that at all. And then they also showed scenes from From Beyond, and I'm like, hey, that's Reanimator, <laughs> right? Because I, I, I guess I assumed it was. So I had seen From Beyond as a young lad. I mean, we're talking, I don't know, this was pre high school, so I don't know how young I was, but I had seen From Beyond. And I assumed it was Reanimator like my whole life, but it wasn't. So now I've seen both, <laughs> but I assume I so Reanimator I've I've only seen all the way through very recently. Right, but from Beyond I saw a long time ago. Yeah, I mean they both of these movies. I'd say a lot of Lovecraft stuff is body horror, right? Especially if, mm-hmm. you know, obviously Reanimator, zombies, from Beyond, the creature, the amalgamation that comes out at the end, right? Right, yeah. Um, and I know Reanimator, like, uh, there is Evil Dead or Army Darkness versus Reanimator Comics, which I'm staring at right now. <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> with with Ash from Evil Dead, because I'm you know, clearly obsessed with Evil Dead. Um, I know. I mean, in theory, it's a deadite, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, in the basic in the term, basic sure. Terms, right. So, you know, it's, they're great body horror, I think. You know, like I said, there's 
Bride of Ramir, which is then leading more into the whole Frankenstein thing because we get Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Right? The sequels I have not watched, so you're going to be the expert on the sequels. The original I have I watched. I have not watched them in a very, very, very long time. <laughs> um, I'll have to go back and watch them. I think it's kind of deep. I think we can talk more about these in the body horror episode because we have very fond opinions of some of those movies in that category. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, I mean, I don't feel like we've had a lot of Lovecraft movies. Like we had the little surge in the 80s, and kind of one that we can talk about next is The Curse. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh, let's specify the 1987 Curse with Will Wheaton. Right. <laughs> um, and I don't feel like I ever recall that. Seen it. I know there's been four of them. Only three of them are related. <laughs> um, and that's something that I, I watched this week was I'm like, how did I miss the curse? Yeah, I mean, obviously back then I would not have known who Will Wheaton was. I didn't know who he was until what the Star Trek came out. That was way later, though. That was in the right. 90s. Um, so, yeah, no, I had never seen it either. I mean, I only seen it because I was researching, you know, Lovecraft movies and I saw one with Will Wheaton. I'm like, what? So I watched it. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I didn't know about it either. But I mean, I thought it was I thought it was great. Well, other than the ending, I think the ending is not good. The ending, I think, is like the ending of a different story that they like tacked on. Um, but I think it followed the original story or at least the original idea of the story pretty closely up until about the last 15 minutes. And then it just went off the rails. Yeah. I, I, you know, and we can kind of talk about the if you if you can call it a, a remake or I, I'm going to call it a remake. That's part of the remake, you know, reboot revival discussion later on. Um, these episodes is the color out of space, right? Which is based off of that story with Nick Cage, um, Tommy Chong. I can't remember anyone else's name that's in there. <laughs> um, and I know director of color out of space is a, a director that you really enjoy. Richard Stanley. Stanley. Right. Now, we watched Color of Space when it came out, right? A couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you how do you think the two compare? Do you think both are good adaptations of the story itself, which is, you know, something we really discussed. Lovecraft is very poetic and a lot of his stuff very, like, sensory type things. Um, I'm not sure necessarily as body horror as we get, but I mean, you can, you can definitely put body horror in both of these categories, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, the, you know, the curse, I was, you know, the mom, she, quite honestly, I was watching it. Like she first looked at, she turned into a witch and then she turned into a deadite. As far as, as, yeah. far as my visual representation of it goes. And yeah, no, that's and, fair. And just, you know, boils essentially on people. <laughs> Um, yeah, a lot of boils. There's a boils on everybody. You know, and they're like, and I don't recall, I was watching it and the oldest son or farmhand, he just kind of disappeared, right? Yeah. He just just went went away. away. I was thinking that too. The weird guy with the hair on his shoulders. Yeah. Yeah, He just like poof gone. I mean, he was, I think he was only there to forward the whole 
the mom is an adulterous subplot. Right. And then after after that, he had no more use, so he was gone. Right. Which, you know, that, uh, the idea was, uh, I don't know why they didn't call it out of space. I know why they call it the curse is because the stepdad, very, very religious, right? For, you know, and he blamed that the curse on the co- crops was all because of the wife being an adulterer, you know, sleeping right. with her stepson. I'm assuming stepson's farm man. They never explain it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't. I was trying to figure out. I was like thinking about it the whole time. I'm like trying to figure out this family dynamic. Right. Like it looks like I think Will Wheaton and the little girl were like they were real brother and sister from and from the mom, right. and they're like their previous dad. Like either I think died. I think they mentioned that he yeah. died. And then I think that the 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 stepdad guy, the jerk Christian stepdad guy, and the fat son. You know, I think that was his real son. I don't think that was her right. son. But I think the other guy was just like a farmhand because he was like sleeping out in a barn. Right. But he was also eating so, breakfast with them, but we never see him again. So, right. Yeah. He just like, dis- like I said, after that happened, I'm assuming he like fired him, you know, as soon as he found out about the adultery thing, but they didn't show that and they didn't say anything. Like no one ever mentioned him ever again. He just poof gone. Right. And I thought for a while there, because I said, see the color out of space first. Um, that he might have been the Tommy Chong character. Okay, yeah. Like the guy who was kind of on the farmland, but really wasn't. That was because, you know, the water came from the well, and the well was a big part of the Colorado space with, with Nick Cage. And, mm-hmm. you know, and he was able, and Tommy Chong's character was able to see what was going on. It was also part of that well. And, you know, both being focused on that, I thought maybe it would be correlated, but. Um, now in you know spoiler for the color of space you know not no one survives except the the TVA as they had them in the A's one the water guy right mm-hmm. entire family dies right and they never explained why that water guy came back no like the doctor guy, I understand why he came back because that was, I mean, that was like a shining moment, I think. Right. right. It's like the the guy was like that, this whole subplot of the guy like testing the water and bringing it to the lab. And the lab tells him, oh, it's got some horrible things in it. You need to, you know, get all the people away from this water immediately. So he goes there to warn everybody. He walks in the door and he gets hit in the back of the head with a hammer and he's down and right. dead. And that's it. And, that, and then all of a sudden that other guy comes in and saves the kids. It's like, you could have just easily just combined that into one person, <laughs> you know, like, I don't understand why they needed two people. Maybe they really wanted a shining moment. Well, like, sh- maybe that's what he was really they going to shine movement. They didn't want to kill one of the Duke boys is what it comes down to. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> you know, Jeez. I'm like, why, like, why does he look so, why does he look so familiar as a Duke? <laughs> I can tell which one, but I know he was the Duke. Oh, <laughs> now going back to color space, body horror, Richard mm-hmm. Stanley, kind of known for that right yeah, yeah obviously definitely you know hardware you're one of your all-time favorites that you introduced me to i've never seen never ran across it and i think it's because it's before the time i was able to do it maybe the time i was going to the video store it wasn't there anymore well it was i think it was considered like a b movie at the time i mean it really wasn't but i think it was considered a b movie at that time so if you didn't really look at the racks when it came out it probably got pushed to the back shelf pretty quick highly possible um but i mean overall i think they're they're both good movies 
Um, I, I wouldn't say that Will Wheaton was the star of the curse because I don't think he was in it very much. I feel like when the Doctor or the Duke was Duke's boys was in it more. Right. Um, but overall, I mean, I think with the Richard Stanley, you know, taking when he did Color of Space and he said that he maybe got defunded for the rest of the stuff he wanted to do. He wanted to do one of the other movies that we're discuss is Dublin Shore, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, but basically his uh, his funding got pulled because there's um, uh, sexual assault allegations against right. him. So, as, I mean, as, if that happened, I mean, I don't know the story. I didn't look at the story. But as, basically, as soon as that happened, um, the funding, you know, the production company pulled his funding after that. Um, I don't know. I mean, that nothing ever got solved. All I know is that at this moment in time, he filed a suit against the woman that are, that made the allegations for libel or okay. whatever. Um, so I, obviously it's a, it's a still ongoing thing. I just know as of right now, the funding for it has been pulled um, until that stuff gets sorted out. It probably won't go anywhere. So we're probably talking a few couple of years before we figure out where that goes. Right, but that's the status of it. Right and I now. think he, he seemed very keen on, on doing it. I think he did well. I'd love to see Doug Mature. I'd love to see the story and what he was able to do with that. I was hoping that was going to be a resurgence of Lovecraft. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, yeah, based on the, the, the color out of space, he did a fantastic job on, I mean, very, very good adaptation and very well made. Um, so yeah, I would love, I would love to see him make other HP Lovecraft stories, but yeah, as of right now, it's up in the air. So who knows if it'll happen. All right. So talking done with horror. 1970. Yes. Now, Dean Stockwell has some amazing sideburns in this movie. <laughs> Let me just start it with that. I mean, he has fantastic sideburns and that mustache. Oh, yeah. If that, if that is not like one of the creepiest mustaches I've ever seen, just how weirdly, like perfectly groomed it was. Like is it cut at a perfect it's, angle upward. Right. It's <laughs> odd. It is, it is off putting. It is very he's strange. supposed to be 25. He looks like he's 50. That's basically right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, it is the 70s. Right. Everybody looked older in the 70s, but still, right. yeah, it's pushing it. Right. So, um, but yeah, I, I know. I know you have your issues with it. I liked it. I liked the, the weird psychedelics, color flashes and stuff that were happening. I like the weird orgy stuff that was going on in the dream world and and the, just the weird um like over sexuality i want to say of like the weird rituals that were going on right and, um and, and i don't get me wrong like it's, i just had problems with the weird flashes of light and you know for for those listening the, the story is essentially um his was it his great grandfather was killed or burned for reading for the necronomicon kind of tying back to the necronomicon yep. and he wanted to like study the book to see what was wrong um, and he somehow, with his perfect mustache and sideburns, convinces one of like the light, like the professor's light aides, to go with him on this trip where everyone's weirdly just weird around him. Like gas was a dollar to fill up the entire tank. Like they just didn't want anything to do with him and his family. Right. And so you know he's trying to summon the old ones, right? The, you know, if you want to call it Eldritch Terrors, the old ones. Cthulhu and stuff like mm-hmm. that, and right, very, very, very seventies ish. I can tell you that they bought the rights to one song and one song only, 
and just played <laughs> it in different tones throughout the entire movie. <laughs> okay, a lot of movies in the 70s did that. I mean, that was just a 70s thing. Um, have you ever seen um, any of the old, like, Bruce Lee movies? No. Um, there is one, which is the worst one. I mean, it's a great movie, don't get me wrong. It's uh, um, Return of the Dragon. It's the one where he's in Italy. Yeah. He's working at a Chinese restaurant in Italy. Anyway, there is a song. I wouldn't even call it a song. It's more like like five notes. <laughs> and they repeat those five notes. And depending on the emotion that they're going for, they play it slower. <laughs> they play it louder. They play it more jaunty or, or, or slow it down. But it is literally the same five notes. It's not even an entire song. It's the same five notes. And they play it over and over and over again. Bizarre, but I think that was just a 70s well, thing because that was that movie was also in there. This, this movie gave me a lot of man of the hands of fate vibes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the Torgo song. You, like, if I say Torgo song, you know what song I'm talking about when he's his walk, right? And right, man of the hands of fate. and the character he kind of looked like man of the hands of fate in a way. <laughs> the, Okay. Uh, the 70s perm, the stash, the sideburn. <laughs> Everyone looks like they're right or porno. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, now, the horror. Let's talk about the horror. And that's when the horror is when we got all the flashing, psychedelic, I'm on an acid trip vibe, right? Right. Um. Okay, it looks like a beholder. Right. And that's what I was, that was that's what it, it looks like. An eyeball and a mouth with a whole bunch of like snakes coming out of it. That's what it looked like. I, I considered it hands. It looked like hands to me, like a whole bunch of hands. Um. Well, the scene. This right. The scene where the one girl, okay, like her friend, went to the house looking for yeah. her, and she like threw the old man down and ran upstairs right. and like went in the the evil monster room. Um. And it like bizarrely tore all her clothes off somehow. Right. Um, but yeah, it looked like snake hands. Yeah. Like it looked like snakes. Right. And if you look at oh, if you look at the cover art, they're also okay. snakes. And, and plot twist, that's the guy's twin, right? Yep. Um. So I can see, I, I definitely see a beholder from D and D in that hands down, right? No pun intended. That's mm-hmm. like hands. Uh do you see other movies very similar to this? Because watching this, this is the first time watching it, was this week. It seemed almost uh, Basket Case-ish. Like, okay. Basket Case. I can see that. Like the story of Basket Case, right? It's his, yeah, it's his conjoined twin, but it's still this creature that's you know, a, a creature that's very handsy. <laughs> uh, and yeah. From it. Um. You know, I don't, I, I don't necessarily like, you know, the professor shouting the same word to him like three times, made him engulf in fire and fall off the cliff at the end. Well, he got hit by lightning. Right. That's what set him on fire. But yeah, as the, I don't know what, like, I don't know what they were doing. They were like pointing fingers at each other saying, we're, yeah, I don't know. Like what he's, was he's like, he yeah, kept saying the same word. He's sense. like, he's like, stop, stop saying that one word. <laughs> Right. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't understand. He's like, he's been doing this ritual for like hours at this right. point. And like somebody comes in and says one word and it like blows your whole thing out of proportion. Like, come on. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, I, I think that's a move that could get done differently for now 52 
few years. Later. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. There's 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 a lot of room for improvement there. I'm just saying there was a lot of fun. 1970 stuff. I mean, because yeah, it came out in 1970. Right. Um, it was cool. I mean, as far as like differences from the story, there's a lot of huge differences in the oh, story. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Like in the in the movie, they yeah, the guy with the perfect mustache and the sideburns is all like charming and has like weird hypnotic eyes or whatever. Um, in the book, he's like a deformed like Igor type of dude. <laughs> right, and his, his, like, like he's all like messed up looking. Everybody's like has to get away from him. like, and he smells so bad he like scares people away. Right, but here's, here's um, and then he tries to steal the book and he gets shot and killed, and the whole rest of the story happens without him. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is we can say this is the first. H.P. Lovecraft movie that has his name attached to it, because obviously we discussed with Poe once that was H.P. Lovecraft, but wasn't Poe. But you say this is probably the first movie that we can that we were able to find, right? Yeah, I mean, there was other ones that were that were based on his stories. Like, there's the, another one that was based on Color Out of Space is that Die, Monster, Die yeah. movie um, that came out, I think it was in the 60s. Um, and it's kind of, you know, the same thing, but, it, you know, it's got, like, a weird, like, rich guy in a mansion you know, somehow harvested the meteor and the weird, you know, color coming out of it. It's, it's similar. I mean, it's based on the story, but it's not right. great. But yeah, I don't, they didn't really like put his name up in, in lights, you know, selling it as an H.P. Lovecraft story. I would say the Dunwich Horror is the first one that really did that. That I could find. I mean, there might be other ones out there, but that's the one that I found. Looked like it. And then, you know, I think my first introduction, besides reading or not knowing it's Lovecraft, but knowing is H.P. Lovecraft was Dagon, Dagon, whatever you want to say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think you watched that. I did uh, not. Very, very. I think it was 1999, 2000, 2001 ish. Um, and very fish people ish story. You know, people, uh, husband and wife, or just got married, goes like an inn, and they get seduced by this. This priestess that's part fish and a creature comes out of the well and bites people up to their hands that are chained above it and it's very I can't describe it I mean it's bizarre like it's that sounds it, fun it, I didn't I didn't know I didn't look didn't look that fun when I was uh, looking at it, it so it, I didn't it, watch I mean, it I I have it on DVD I own it I like it that much <laughs> it's been a year, couple years since I've watched it but it's very like looking back at you could say it's like you know the shape of water ish feel with the like this sensuality of this fish creature that we had in that movie um and watching the in search of darkness documentaries is the people that did reanimator from beyond that was their next move they wanted to do was they got okay. they had elements from from beyond of the fish people in it you know, he didn't get to do it because I, I don't recall why they said Search of Darkness, but you know, then thirteen-ish years later, we got it. Um, it was interesting enough, and I go, "Hey, there's another one here that says H.P. Lovecraft, and it was Necronomicon, <laughs> which I'd have to review again." But it was short stories around the Necronomicon, so it's kind of like a Tales of Terror with Necronomicon because you know the Necronomicon played a big part in a lot of H.P. Lovecraft work. He was kind of obsessed with it, let's say. Right? 
Right. Okay. Yeah. I did not watch this one. Are they all like? Are they all like Lovecraft stories, or are they yes. or are they just like Lovecraft esque? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The Lovecraft esque. And I think that kind of what we could say for a lot of the stuff is a lot of the stuff is inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. Right. I'm not sure. You know, we have some adaptations, but not too many. And which is amazing because he's written a lot of stuff. Yes. I yes. mean, so it kind of comes into, you know, what discussion of all this is, you know, what do we think worked and what what doesn't work in this movie? What could we do differently to bring these movies or these stories justice into film? Um, I think, I mean, I would say a lot of it, I mean, especially in the early days, a lot of it stuff was effects. You know, a lot of the stuff that they talk about in the story, you know, like, of course, like Lovecraft with, you know, like monster fish creatures and, you know, half person, half fish monsters, you know, I mean, you know, all kinds of weird stuff that they would talk about, you know, with the practical effects back then, they could make it work. Right. But it was, you know, not great. <laughs> but I think like nowadays they could do a way, way better job. Um, I mean, Poe, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot more. Um, I guess it's kind of cinematic tricks that they could do now. I mean, there's a lot more things that are accepted now, you know, it won't be as theatrical as it was. I mean, don't get me wrong. Those theatrical ones were good for their time period, but um, I don't think it would work in today's world, but I would say for Lovecraft, at least the effects, as we see with Colorado space, I mean, Colorado space had really good effects. I mean, I think they really got across what Lovecraft originally wrote right. in his, in his stories, you know, uh, and I think it was done very well. And I think, especially the Lovecraft thing, I think that's what it needs is just better effects. And I think we're there. <laughs> So how okay? So we you know we have this resurgence of Lovecraft. How can we bring Poe stories back to the forefront? We're, we're looking at sixty years plus of, of some of these movies being out. Um, I would I would say that these don't need to be the hour and a half movies. That we could have almost like an anthology of Poe stories as like an episodic thing. Like one episode is a Poe story. And it could be a 45-minute episode, you know, half the runtime of the movie as a TV show. Um, now, I think a lot of the problems we had in the past was, we still see it today, is a lot of Lovecraft, a lot of Poe does not have happy endings. You know, the guy who we were right. not supposed to be rooting for quits or, or something right. like that. And I think you know, we've seen it in the Hollywood horror movies where, you know, the studios come in there and say, we want a happy ending. Can we, do you think having the more adherence to, we're rooting for this, this protagonist, which is not a good person. You know what I mean? Do you think we, that would be right. a good way to have it as closer to a, a TV episode format or length and more adherence to it? Or do you think, you know, obviously this work as a play, as radio broadcast, easier because of the internal monologues and narrations? Um, no, I, I mean, I definitely think that could work. I mean, especially in now, I think people are ready for that. I mean, you look at stuff like, um, you know, like Black Mirror, right? right? That would be kind of similar. So, you know, so you're going to have like, you know, totally different stories every week. But, you know, a lot of Black Mirror episodes, people are not good. I mean, they're they're just, you know, 
bad people right. more or less and people love those episodes and it's and it's a show that works and i think uh, you know especially in today's world i think they're ready for that i, th- I think they're ready for like poe stories being told in the poe way but i mean poe uh, you know you go by how it's originally written it's kind of like classy horror right? right you know i think I, I think that's yeah that could be a good thing to go on because you know a lot of i'm not going to say all but a lot of the horror nowadays is kind of like you know, low, you know, grotesque kind of gory horror. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that that's what most of it is. And you could go for some classy horror that, you know, doesn't have this, they have to show like, you know, gore and violence all the time, but still tries to scare you nonetheless. I so think like, work. like, uh, refined tales from the crypt. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. I like that. I think that would work. I, I, I thought there was something that was about that. That's supposed to come at some point in time. I, I read about it once. I, hear anything about it since and obviously with with mike flanagan doing you know the fall of the house of usher i i feel like he with his other stories he's done especially the haunting series is he does a lot of research for his material and i'm hoping that what he does does well enough that we can kind of bring that resurgence back like i think poe has been ingrained in our lives for so long that we have it on the simpsons that we, we see all stuff and just like I said with Lovecraft we have everyone knows who Cthulhu is no one knows what he stands for necessarily or much about it and I think that's kind of what I'd like to see just through these early adopters of horrors writers because we have you know we have our Stephen King we have our Joe Hills we have our Clive Barker that you know also had you could arguably say bad adaptations of, of their stuff right Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is there something in particular you'd like to see come back, or like to see in these formats to bring these stories back into more of a traditional, I'd say, gothic style horror? Does it have to be modern day? Or can it be set in the past? Um, I mean, it could be both, but I think I don't know. I think I think that's why Lovecraft hit such a strong note. Is I think it's it really does fit perfectly in that time period, you know, that that time period that that he was, you know, originally, you know, wrote it in. I know most of the stuff he wrote was kind of like, you know, late 1800s or 1900s, at least the setting was. Yeah. Um, and I think that that really worked for that that um, that level of, of horror, you know, like old kind of ritual secrets and, and stuff like that. And I would I would really like to see something, you know, kind of combining all of the, um, you know, like a Cthulhu mythos. Mythos, mythos stuff together um you know because a lot of those stories are talking about the same you know old gods right, right? or the same old ones i think you could just kind of take those all together you know the, the you know, big well that you can draw things from you know put them all together and then build like a you know not necessarily different movies but you know like a, maybe like a, a show that combines all of those things together and you've got plenty of places you can go right i mean you have plenty of places that you can you know, go to or, you know, wind your way around to, you know, because plenty of characters, plenty of stories. You can have a big combined world with all of them. And then, you know, there's a there's a few seasons of content. There, so like say. the castle of like a Castle Rock type show or Castle Rock was Stephen uh, King's yeah. world with the especially the main area of dairy and, and they call back to events and they could have different stories in there. Like kind of like a, yeah. that the mythos being the universe kind of centered around Necronomicon and the old ones yeah so yeah if if it happened yeah i would like to see you know either in that classic era of 
uh, what is it? Is that the Victorian era? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I don't know if that's the correct time, but it's it's around that time period. You know, either it would be like that, or it would be like you know modern day with like technology and stuff. I think that would be cool too. You know, as a uh, you know, like going back to these old you know kind of ritual sites, or maybe even like something where it where it does like timeline jumping, right? right. So we're like you have like modern people researching things that happened a long time ago, and then you could have a Victorian era people acting out what they're researching in the future. You could kind of jump back and forth that way. I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, do you do you see just kind of transitioning here? Like, how could we? You know, we have these short stories, right? How come do you mm-hmm. think like we could have a Stephen King or Joe Hill write a twenty-page short story and get? Ten children out of the corn dollar. Like, do you think there's? Do you think there's <laughs> anything different with their stories, or is it because it's more modern that we're able to adapt it better now, almost two hundred years later at this point in time? Um. Yeah. I mean, I think. Well, I mean, specifically Stephen King. I think that's what he does well is he connects with people at on different levels of things, right? Um. So I mean, you like like you talk about children of the corn. Like, you know, what is what is children of the corn about? You know, it's about kids like separating themselves from adults and then trying to live their own lives. Right. right? And it goes horribly, horribly wrong. Now, if you, you know, if the first one does well, if that, you know, whatever, you know, basic story does it for you, then you can keep remaking the same movie is essentially what they're doing. Right. Is, you know, they just keep remaking the same movie over and over again with different casts and slightly different stories. But it's all basically the same idea. Um, so yeah, if, if it works really well the first time, they'll keep doing it until it stops making money. So until they stop making money off of children, <laughs> in the corn movies, they're going to keep making them. Do you them. think it's a product of their time? Like these, like Poe and Lovecraft were really ahead where we didn't have these mediums to properly convey it to the point where we can do that resurgence. Like a story is a story. You're not going to rewrite the books that way. Like the, the, the next logical step would be the movie or the TV show right yeah and they didn't have it right. back then you like i mean like yeah you wrote the book and that was it like there was no other next step right. <laughs> you know i mean like i mean they had like theaters and plays but they didn't like adapt books into plays i mean i'm sure they did but not that often right i mean so it's, it would be a very rare thing especially for a horror story right to end up being a play yeah i think you know as we you know touched on the modern directors and writers are taking influences from Lovecraft and Poe. Like they were, I think the, the help starting of that trend, right? Obviously we have, you know, Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker that, you know, H, even you know, to the point H, you know, classic literature, if you want to call it classic literature versus, versus Poe or Lovecraft. You know, I think more people have read probably in H.G. Wells than Lovecraft. Yeah, probably. I mean, because it's, I mean, it appeals to a wider audience. Um, I mean, again, you know, you have something like, you know, you put the word horror on things and you're going to alienate, you know, what a good half of people at least. Um, because there's a lot of people that just, you know, don't want to be scared and don't want to read about anything scary. You know, they want to read about, you know, happy or interesting things, whatever it is, you know? Right. I, I think so like if but if you have a story like an interesting like adventure story like an hg wells story i mean that appeals to a lot of people i mean you're going to turn some people off but a lot less people than you will if you put horror right. on 
and you know, I think this is a, a good way to talk about kind of our next next piece of you know, core times and beginnings of stuff like that is universal monsters, right? Everyone knows them. Mm-hmm. They're they are a part of everyday. I, I would almost say media at this point, right? So mm-hmm. universal monsters. We have our classic monsters. We have Dracula. We have Frankenstein's monster. We have Invisible Man. Each from Black Lagoon, the Mummy, and the Wolfman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as we discussed, you know, the first movies were typically horror, and they had atmosphere and, and stuff like that. And you know, the '30s and '40s period, and even some, I think, '50s was the reign of the Universal monsters movies. Um, you know, we have Dracula, obviously written. By Bram Stoker, right? And you know, Belagosi played him, and now he is the voice of Dracula. Even to this day and age, you know, we have oh, what's that? What are those movies? Can't think of Hotel Transylvania, where oh, right, where right. The classic Dracula voice is Bela Lugosi's native tongue of him speaking. Right. Like, I I love I love the Universal. I think they are a good you know, cornerstone of horror as as we know it, right? So we have Dracula from folklore. We have the Wolfman also from folklore. Um, and then we have in here we have Visible Man, which is from H.G. Wells. Not necessarily not necessarily horror, but science, right? He creates a potion, mm-hmm. goes invisible, um, and each sequel that we had of the Visible Man was a different character playing the Invisible Man. It was never the same character. It was never, you know what I mean? There's the Invisible Woman, Invisible Woman, Invisible Agent, all different people taking the same formula. Um, and then we have, you know, like I said, Creature from Black Lagoon. We have the Mummy. Where was it the early 1900s, 1920s, where this huge fad was digging up Egyptian Pharaohs and stuff like that. Yeah, man, the, they did. I mean, they did, they did such horrible things with all the Egyptian stuff, dude. Like I was reading the other day, I was reading an article where they had um, a paint. It was like called like mummy brown, and it was literally a paint made from ground up mummies. Yeah. Like they would get mummies from Egypt, grind them up, and make paint out of them. I mean, that's how like the ridiculous level it got to. That's a, right. a, a, anyway. So I digress, that, but as like just shocking. Right. And I'd say that as as far as cinema is is concerned with horror, that these staples, like everyone's watched them at some point in time, you know, at least one of them. You know, we may not consider it scary anymore. It's black and white. You know, we're talking almost ninety years ago at this point in time. Um, and they were more atmosphere. They were more play like they're the big set pieces that like we we're discussing in, in post of, and. You know, I I think what kind of derailed them a little bit is we ended up with these movies being comedies by the end of them, right? The last runs of the Universal Monsters were either Kinsella, me, whoever. And I think in the very short time frame. Um, but, you know, like I said, vampires, we have lots and lots of movies about vampires. And you know, Frankenstein monster. Everyone knows the story. It's a science experiment gone wrong, which I think is a classic 
storytelling in horror. You know, you could argue, I could argue that Jurassic Park is the same formula. It, it's a science experiment that goes awry. You could say Westworld is that as well. It's science, you know, that we didn't necessarily understand. And it, the next step of it, right, with robots, you know, Westworld was written that way with the idea of computers and our fear of it. And Jurassic Park, you know, the fear of the science of cloning it, the next logical step, you know, both by... Um, Michael Crichton. I think he took a lot of inspiration from the classic Universal Monster storyline. Now, that's fair. Now, like I said, we had these 30s, 40s, early 50s. Then we kind of went into, you know, the the B sci-fi movies. Then we have the Poe movies. Then, you know, Hammer Horror, the British production company, came back. And try to make these creatures scary again. You know, it's the 60s, the 70s, where we can show blood, where we can have the implications that are there. We can show kind of death that that was not necessarily implied in the post stuff, but, you know, just a couple years later, a decade later, we're able to start doing more with horror. And I think that was a good way of introducing the public back to these monsters, these creatures, you know, what have you, to lead into the big explosion of horror in the 70s and 80s that we got. Um, and I think just like, you know, the early Universal Monsters is the 80s, unfortunately, we started seeing these fall back to comedic roots. You know, we have Monster Squad, you have My Best Friends of Vampire, where it became 80s comedy Instead of, you know, Abbott Costello, we have 80s comedies. Um, no, I'm not... Buffy the Vampire, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Slayer. She would right. there. Right. Well, the original. Right. The Christy Swanson original yes. one. Um, Starring Paul Rubens, don't forget. Yes. Now, we also then had, in the early 90s, we have a few examples of the resurgence. It seems about every about 20-ish years, 25-ish years, that we have this resurgence, right? We have, you know, the Nero playing Frankenstein's monster. We have mm -hmm. two actors doing awful British accents of <laughs> Renault Ryder and Keanu Reeves in Dracula. Huh. Um, and I yeah. would... Even even Keanu Reeves was not happy with this right. performance and in that. Poor Gary Oldman. I think he's great in the movie, <laughs> just it wasn't done well enough because I felt like that was we we're trying to have that resurgence and we just never it never took off well again I mean this is you know this is kind of like where I uh, you know jump into this so we're like you know they're remaking old movies yeah. right now you look at those old movies and at this point in time those movies are considered cliche they're considered stereotypical they're considered you know generic right. Right now, I mean, those originals when they came out, I mean, I didn't watch them when they came out, obviously, because I wasn't right. around, but um, I didn't I didn't really get into them because by the time I started, you know, moving into the horror realm, they were already old. They were already old news, cliche, stereotypical. Like, I didn't really have anything to do with it because, you know, you go to watch a Dracula movie and then there's like, you know, 30 Dracula movies and they all look ridiculous and half of them have ridiculous right. names, yes. you know. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I don't 
really care. I don't really want to get into this. So they're they're trying to remake those old movies when a lot of the people that were that were you know being aimed towards had a kind of attitude at the time of like you know they were tired of you know the rehashing of the same old story because again it had been done badly so many times like they don't care anymore <laughs> like they don't they don't want to see the same movie again i mean that's what they were trying to do i don't think it was different enough it didn't have enough of like any kind of different spirit or or energy to it that was going to change anybody's mind it was like they were going back to the same kind of stereotypical cliche story that had been around at that point for what you know 80 years right right? um so yeah they didn't do anything i mean they could have done you know interesting different stuff to like drag people in but they really didn't they just they tried to remake the original in a more modern way but not even a modern setting it was still that old setting but it was the same story just made better with like today's equipment Again, well, like you said, we're not bad actors, but bad acting. Right. Now, would you say it was just more of like, hey, let's remake it in color and just be, leave it at that? You know, are we looking at like a psycho yeah. type scenario where we had the Vince Vaughn cycle in the 90s as essentially psycho, but 35 years yeah, later? Yeah, it's, <laughs> right. Yeah, like a shot for shot, like exact right. remake. Um, I mean, they weren't they weren't. They weren't that bad, but yeah, again, I don't think they were they were different enough. I think they just thought, well, we could just remake them in the modern world and then put modern marketing on them, and it'll it'll take off. And they did pretty well, but they didn't do great. You know, they didn't do well enough for them to keep going. Right. And do you think they maybe were trying to do the old stuff because by that point in time, slashers were essentially dead. You know, eighties were full slashers. Early nineties, people were tired of slashers. Right. We already had ten. Eight, nine, ten of the same slasher movies at that point in time. Right. Uh, I'm just wondering if that resurgence is what we're seeing. Is that you know the resurgence we had with Hammer? I think... We got past the sci-fi time frame. We can't let's let's go back to this. I think I think they tried to do that again. I think yeah. I think there was definitely that gap. I think there was definitely a want for something new and interesting. And again, they tried uh, taking advantage of that, but I think they just failed. They just they tried remaking something that had already existed before in basically the same way, only with modern technology. And it, again, yeah, that it wasn't what those people were missing. It wasn't what those people were looking for. So it just kind of, again, I mean, it made money. It's not like it, you know, it's not like it bombed right. right. But it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't big enough to make Dracula too. Right. right. Yeah. Oh, so then we have those. And then, you know, like I said, you know, we have Alan the Chipmunks meet the Wolfman, Dracula being like Scooby-Doo. Huh. Very, very watered down and mass produced ideas of it. I don't think that helped things in that in that time period. Um, no, that, that stuff takes a long time to wear off. But then comes along the Mummy with Brandon Fraser. Now, I'd say a very big departure from the story. Now it's still Emotep, and you still have the premise behind it the same. But now we're, you know, Indiana Jones in. It's a little bit. It's a very action heavy movie. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, it's an action adventure movie with horror elements. It's not, it's not a horror movie. I'd say it's an action adventure movie with horror elements. Right. But it did well. And I really enjoy that movie as well. I really like The Mummy Returns. Now, it also spawned the, some of the worst CG we've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's kind of the path that it seemed like we were going to start. It's like we're 
horror is not going to work for us anymore with these old stories that are almost you know hundred years old. Let's make them action. And I think that was working. And then you know I think the next I think the next movie we had to as a remake of that would be Hollow Man. Arguably a really I think okay. it's a very good movie with Kevin Bacon. You know, very not horror but suspense thriller ish. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, they I mean they definitely put that that darker edge on it. Yeah, you know what I mean. So where like yeah, the guy was not entirely stable, right? <laughs> you know when he took it and it, it just kind of you know pushed him over the edge and then, yeah he became like an antagonist. So where like you know and a lot a lot of the other invisible stories like it, you know it, it either skirted the line or was even on protagonist right. side. You know he was uh, the first the first invisible man was a thief. He stole the formula and used it for thieving. Right, and then about that time frame, we got Dracula two thousand. I would say the next Dracula we had was Dracula two thousand after the Bram Stoker Dracula twenty nineties. Um, Dracula two thousand. I see. I remember. I saw this movie in the theater. I don't remember why. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember what. Like, because at that time I wasn't, you know, like heavily going to the theater. I don't know why I saw that movie in the theater. I don't. Maybe I was board somewhere anyway um i did like it because you know depending on um what uh world or realm you're in um vampires are sometimes uh affected by silver sometimes not um and it you know it's like in the marvel universe silver hurts vampires but you know in most other universes it does not but like in that one you know they gave a really i thought they they kind of broke down okay these are all the, the weaknesses of the vampire and here's why you know, and they gave you like exactly why I thought it fit really well with like, you know, actually giving that backstory as to what, you know, uh, you know, Dracula is and why all these weaknesses and things happen. And, and I I thought it was this good. I thought they wrapped it up really well. I mean, overall, the movie wasn't, you know, wasn't a 10, right. but I, you know, it, it was enough. Interesting things were happening where I enjoyed. Yeah. Dracula being Judas. But that's, you know, right. Reason why I cut off the head, Jewish was hung, silver, because of the silver gold, you know, silver pieces, cross, Aussie, Christianity. Um, and there were two more movies in that series. I think there's Dracula 2001 and then Dracula 3000. Yeah. Really? Those were awful. Just. I, I didn't even awful. know they existed. Like, I think it was, was it the first one or was the second one? They had a, um, like a, a net over him where he had to count. Where he had to count? Yeah, like, they, they lured, they went into the idea that... You sure this wasn't a Sesame Street episode? No, like, vampires are obsessed with counting. Like, he threw a bucket of grains of rice on the ground. He wouldn't be able to, after until he stopped and picked, collected them all and counted. I think that was directed 2001. <laughs> that they went into that. It sounds, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't, yeah, I don't remember. Uh, it's been a while. Yeah. And that, that was kind of the, the end of the Universal Monsters that we saw for all. Now we got a whole bunch of stuff with young adult, with obviously Twilight and vampires, and it became, I think, watered down again, right? It's lost its edge. Yeah. And then, well, then we hear these rumblings of the Dark Universe. Um, I don't recall if the 2010... Denny the Bull, uh, Wolfman was part of it. 
Um, technically not, but I believe um, after it started, I believe they were because you know, it, you know, it did not pick up as well as they were hoping. So they were trying to add some blood into right. it by like possibly trying to bring in other um, movies that had done well with the characters that they could try to build off of. And I think that was one right. of them, but I don't think it was technically officially. Uh, I think the first official one they said was that Dracula untold. Right. Which I, 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 I I'm like, Oh great. We're going to have this Dracula. Movie. I'm like, really like to see where they're going with it. I didn't go see it in theaters. I, I saw it advertised where I never would go saw it, but then they're like, Oh no, no, sorry. That wasn't the first one we're, we're trying to do. Here's the mummy with Tom Cruise, <laughs> which, I mean, Tom Cruise has done horror, if you will, you know, interview with the vampire, arguably horror, right? But he's more action, and Tom Cruise's the mummy was definitely more action. Yeah, I watched I watched Dracula Unsold. I thought it was it was good. It was fun. It was like a. You know, like it was kind of like an action movie, right? It was like a superhero action yeah. movie. They were trying to make Dracula into like a, a hero. I mean, well, more like, probably more like an anti-hero, right. Right? right? Um, and it was, yeah. I mean, it was entertaining. It was. I mean, I did. I wasn't upset that I watched it. I mean, have I watched it since then? No. <laughs> I mean, it's not. You know, it wasn't like a movie that I would want to own or anything. But it was entertaining enough when I watched it. You know. Yeah. Would I be upset if that was part of a greater universe? No. Um, the mummy, I did not bother to watch, um, just because I heard so many bad things about it. And I can only, every time I think of that movie, I don't think I could enjoy it. Cause I'd be thinking about it the whole time was that goofy scream. Yeah. When they had, <laughs> there was so many memes going around at that time with that stupid scream in there. I would not be able to watch <laughs> the movie without laughing at the damn scream. I would not be able to do it. And again, it doesn't look like I missed much because everybody said i mean i it did not do well monetarily and the reviews were not good so i don't think i no, missed any they tried bringing jekyll and hyde they started really plant trying to plant the seeds of this universe which i don't think tom bruce is ever going to sign up for an expanded universe that used to be necessarily in like that because he's already in one you know uh right i mean if they paid him enough right. i'm sure he'd do fine if he had enough creative control i'm sure he'd right do and it. you know it's as far as I'm aware, it's currently dead. Now. Yes. Kind of the, before we go into our last, the second to last topic is, you know, talking about modern horror and old horror, the roots, and, and Penny Dreadful, the TV show. Um, I know you watched the entirety of it. I'm pretty sure I watched the first season. Um yeah, I watched the original because I think it was three, three seasons. Se- I believe the original was three seasons. Yeah, I watched all those three seasons. Um, it did come back for a weird like another season, but it was the, a, it was a totally different cast and a totally different like location. Right. Um, I did not watch that one, but it doesn't. I don't think I missed much because it got canceled right. <laughs> immediately after that. Um, but no, the first one it was great. I mean, I thought it was a a great way to integrate all that stuff together. I mean, you had. Yeah, you had vampires, you had, you know, the Wolfman, you had, you know, all these different, um, you know, horror kind of elements, you know, all mixed together. And I thought they did a fantastic job. I mean, like um, the whole Frankenstein story arcs and those were were awesome. I thought they were they were great. Right. You know, um, and, and Josh, like I said, and they, said, Josh ahead. Hartnett's character was uh, the Wolfman. He's uh, Talbot was mm-hmm. his last name, which is the last name of the original Wolfman. 
was Ava Green mm-hmm. was the bride of Dracula. And very attractive doing yeah. so. Um, <laughs> she was, she was like, she was kind of like the, uh, um, like, like a storyteller, like a kind of like borderline psychic okay. storyteller kind of thing. Um, no, the bride of Frankenstein was actually, did you watch Doctor Who? The, the revival of Doctor Who I at all? the first season with Billy Piper and Chris um, Okay, yeah, no, Billy Piper. Okay. That's that's who I was going for. Billy Piper plays the Bride of okay. Frankenstein. I don't think. I mean, no, she's in the first season, um, but she's in the first season. She is the um, the Lady of the Night that Josh Hartnett yes, is yeah, hanging yeah, out yeah, with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the in the later season, I don't know why it might happen in the first season. I don't remember. Again, I watched them all at the same time, but um, she ends up dying, you know, from the consumption. Which was a tuberculosis, right. um, and then and then yeah, they ended up. Um, Frankenstein ends up bringing her back as the bride of Frankenstein. So um, she ends up, you know, try, originally trying to hang out with the original Frankenstein, you know, right. guy, Frankenstein monster dude, um, and then you know they don't get along very well, and then she starts hanging out with Dorian Gray, right. and then yeah, then they're horrible together. But um, that was a that was a great storyline. I, I mean, I like that a lot. But yeah, the, she so she plays the Bride of Frankenstein. Now, would you say that was more story and action versus horror? Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of like there was a lot of weird atmospheric like dark elements to it. Um, I mean, as it as it went on, it became kind of a little more abstract. <laughs> You know, because there was a lot of a lot of like Ava Green was like, you know, having like weird breakdowns and, and stuff like that. And, you know, being tortured by, um, you know, like Dracula and, and stuff. I mean, it was it was interesting stuff, but there was a lot of weird, dark elements. But, yeah, I would say probably more drama. I would, I would say more than anything, <laughs> there was drama in there. So it was yeah, drama with a heavy horror and, and occasional action elements. So do you think that is a good amalgamation of the universe monsters and the classic literature to come back into the fray? And, you know, do you think it's kind of like an underrated show that should have gotten more attention than what it did? Uh, I definitely think so. I mean, I think they, they mixed all those old, you know, stories and, and, and movies and, and things together. I thought they did a fantastic job with it. Um, I think it was, it wasn't doing that great. I think it was doing better ratings wise towards the end, but they ended up, I believe they ended up canceling it just because they didn't, they didn't feel confident in the direction they were moving forward. Like they didn't feel the story was strong enough. Right. Um, and then I know that I, I believe um, some of the actors wanted to leave the show. So instead of like having them leave the show, having new people come in and write stuff that they didn't feel was up to snuff to the original stuff, they just kind of let it go. Um, cause I, I believe, I believe Ava Green was leaving. I want I forget. I thought somebody else was leaving too. You'll have to do the horrible 300 sequel. <laughs> <laughs> she was great in it. The movie was terrible. <laughs> so then it begs the question, can we bring this back? How do we bring it back? We've seen the invisible man by, Bloomhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I would say that it's necessarily instead of going to horror, because I think we are so jaded with the Universal Monsters and everything in it, that you could do horror, but it's going to have to be like more 
over the top horror, right? You're gonna have to do something different and make it absolute body horror, I think. But you know, the Invisible Man, obviously, I said technically science, you know, pseudoscience, grace proportion was invisible. Now, for the Invisible Man, technology. Yeah, obviously, he uses technology to create the suit to become invisible, and it's arguably more of a psychological thriller. Do you think that is a good way that if Blumhouse can continue this, they, you know, the rumblings have been Ryan Gosling as a Wolfman in their next thing, and they have a couple more things planned. Do you think that is the direction we can go? Psychological thrillers. Um, I, I definitely do. I mean, especially in the in the modern the technological aspect of things, because I mean, most of those monsters can be easily put into a science gone wrong right. scenario. Um, I mean, I mean, arguably all of them, but I would say like most of them. Um, you know, I mean, like obviously, like Wolfman. Creature of the Black Lagoon, you know, all these things can be like, you know, genetic accidents and, you know, whatever, you know, shit like that easily explained away. The only one that's not is, I mean, it would be Dracula. That, that's because the, the scariest part of him is that he's so old, you know, he's like hundreds of years, you know, <laughs> old, centuries old, if not millennia old. And that's part of his, you know, whole thing is that, you know, he's so old because he's gained all that power over the years and stuff. That's what makes him as strong as he is. Now, if you just make somebody a vampire, it's not as scary as like actual Dracula. But I mean, you could, you know, tweak things a few here and there. I'm sure it can be done well. I mean, that I just say that would be the one that would take the most could tweaking. It, but other, the other ones are pretty easily fit into the technological. Could we realm. explain Dracula and vampirism as a bloodborne pathogen? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's been done right. before. I'm right. just saying, as as far as the the whole centuries old thing, I don't know if you can get that out of it. But I mean, you can just take that element out. I'm sure, as long as it's done well. And I'm sure, you know, I mean, they've done a good job so far. I'm sure they could. I'm sure they could do a good job. I mean, do you, do you want to? See, do you think you want to see the entire ensemble of creatures come back in, in into the fold? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was as long as they, you know, take the time to do it well. I mean, like Invisible Man, it was it was good. It was it was, you know, it was interesting. It was like, you know, it was more like, a, you know, like you said, psychological horror of like, you know, am I going crazy? Am I not? Is this real? Is it not real? Um, you know, I thought that was it was great. And I think, you know, the team that did that did a fantastic job. So I think they could, you know, take out other stuff as long as they give it that same, you know, energy, that same effort. I think it could be great. No. I would say that the Wolfman could be, you know, the idea of lycanthropy is, you know, some people thought they're wolves, but they're not. Could you, we see, use that as a, you know, am I going crazy type this, or I have this disorder or disease that makes me act like a wolf? You know, could we not necessarily be a wolf, yeah. but like, I mean, you know, you know what I mean though, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, wouldn't it be great if he was a high school kid and he would be a wolf playing I mean, basketball? Of course. Uh, I mean, that would be I fantastic. Agree. I agree. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think the whole thing about Wolfman is he need he needs to be hairy, man. He needs to be furry. Like that's like the thing with Wolfman. So, like, I mean, if you show it like only from his perspective, where where he thinks he's got hair all over him, sure, that could work. I mean, you- um, and then maybe maybe the ending like twist is that he's watching videos of himself when he thought he was a Wolfman, and it's just him. You know, without all the fur right. and shit. <laughs> and he's not actually a wolfman. I mean, that would be cool. But again, it's not really wolfman. You, you would say that wolfman has to become a wolf. 
I would say that's what the definition of Wolfman is. <laughs> right? I mean, obviously, Frankenstein, you know, with with all the modern medicine and science that, you know, trying to do, you know, organ transplant, head transplants, that, the the, the science is still, like, the, the idea of the science is still there, that we can still do that. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, he would. Yeah, that would definitely be one of the easier ones to science away. And I, I like I said, I could argue the creature from Black Lagoon is love story. We already got that with the Shape of Water. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there we go. Right. Just bring him on. In. Just bring right. him on in. You know, can we? Do you think with the use of technology, science, and psychological thriller, bring most of these back to the old ones? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you easily can. <laughs> And then if you if you bring Shape of Water in, you can say it's an Oscar winning exactly. universe. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's 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 my hope with with this universe that Bloomhouse is doing. It doesn't have to be connected. I don't want it to be connected to anything else. I just want the creatures to come back, and that we can have because these were made well before we were born. Good way to bring these back. Then, I think this is my, my, right. my best case scenario. Well, yeah, a, a good, honest, serious telling of those stories. Um, I told it from a modern eye, of course, but yeah, stories that you know are literally like you know almost a hundred years old at this point. Right, but yeah, definitely room for it to be done, and I hope it does. Yeah, I mean that's that's all I can hope for, and just people support it and stand behind it, and it's not action-oriented garbage at this point. Yeah. All right. Do you want to close yeah. it out there? Or you no, got anything else you want to say? That's all I got to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so, yeah. Uh, stay tuned for next week. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, the new movie Prey and uh, the whole Predator franchise behind it. Uh, until next time, I'm Salem saying long live the new flesh. Graveyard saying, have you checked on the children? See you next week. Bye. Bye.